prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Good morning, my friends. Thank you for joining me on the Kyle Serafin Show. We have a very special interview today. We have Sheriff Mark Kreider, who is a former FBI agent and currently the sheriff of Walla Walla County in Washington State. He's the former undersheriff of Washington County. I'm sorry, Walla Walla County, uh, a special agent for 22 years. He was a uh, naval fighter jet Rio. That's the guy that sits behind the guy. And uh, he also has a master's in science and safety systems from the University of Southern California. I almost went to USC. My dive buddy when I was in the Air Force was a USC guy. Uh, a master police instructor, firearms instructor, defensive tactics, and a bunch of other exciting things, too. Um, he is an FBI whistleblower from over a decade ago. And what we're going to talk about today is his life experience, how he got into the FBI, what it felt like to be in the FBI, what it felt like when the FBI turned on him, because that's what they do to whistleblowers. We're going to get this story out and we're going to have a really good conversation, totally unscripted. And I don't know where it's going to go, but uh, welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, you glossed over the fact that I went to the Ohio State University, who is in the national championship race. The Ohio State. In fact, it is on my pad and it's cut off. It just says the Ohio and I went right past it. You're totally right. So thanks for joining us. Uh, you were tempting us earlier with the Mountain Views. You're currently in Walla Walla County, Washington State. Tell us where that is so people who don't have good geography skills. Uh, it's kind of in the southeast corner of uh, uh, the state of Washington, right on the uh, Oregon line. It's one of the last bastions of conservatism in the great state of Washington. Certainly. And um, and what is the population in your county? Uh, we're somewhere between 62 and 65,000. OK, fair enough. And how long have you been there? Uh, I, I got um, I kind of got uh, hornswoggled into coming down here by the uh, the former sheriff, uh, a guy by the name of John Turner, uh, did great things for the office. He brought me down to be the under sheriff, under the guise of being in the under sheriff. Uh, I came down in March of 2018. I was hired on as the under sheriff uh, to do a bunch of training um, and and that kind of stuff. And about uh, a month later, he announced that he was not going to rerun. And given the fact that the under sheriff is an appointed position, and I was going to be out of a job. So uh, right. I, I kind of looked at my options and looked at uh, moving on to do some stuff. And the deputies came to me and asked me to run. And so uh, way out of my element, way out of my depth. Uh, as you know, being an FBI agent, you're fairly anonymous for the majority of your time. And right. uh, now I was a public uh, figure in a fairly small town where everybody knew what I did and who I was. And uh, I uh, cobbled together a campaign. I uh, had some great people that jumped in to help me and uh, managed to beat two other candidates and uh, was elected in November of 2018 and uh, sworn in uh, for January 1st, 2019 as the sheriff. And you just got reelected, I heard. I did get reelected. Uh, the best way to run as a political candidate, I ran unopposed. So it was the best campaign <laughs> you could imagine. Well, I imagine that they looked at the, their options and they saw you beat out a field of two last time. What's What's the use, right? I, I hope that's what they thought. I hope they think I'm doing a good job and uh, the people are very supportive down here, of their law enforcement. 
Yep, absolutely. Um, full disclosure, you and I have had a couple of conversations. You reached out to me initially when I first kind of got public. I'm not even sure how we got in touch with each other, but uh, I was really appreciative of just hearing a voice of someone I knew nothing about and 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 getting that support. And I knew that your story was interesting, and I've been holding on to it in my back pocket till this moment. So thanks so much for keeping track of me too. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's very important uh, that there's a network of guys that either. Um, you know, choose to become whistleblowers or uh, like me, I did not really choose to become a whistleblower. I became a whistleblower because of circumstance uh, and trying to do the right thing. But um, I think you really got to know what you're getting into because the playbook doesn't change much from one person to the other. The FBI is very standard in the way they they treat whistleblowers and they retaliate against whistleblowers. No doubt about it. So let's get into your uh, how you got to the FBI and you know where you, you came out of college. As you mentioned, you went to the Ohio State. Walk me through. Were you a ROTC guy? What, what was that your story? Uh, I was. I was not a ROTC guy. Uh, you know, uh, I was a ROTC guy my freshman and sophomore year, and then I uh, grew my hair long and badmouthed my country and uh, nice. uh, decided that wasn't for me. I went to work for a Fortune 500 <laughs> company when I graduated college, uh, but in the back of my mind, I always wanted to be in the military. Uh, I had a uh, I had a contract to go into the Marine Corps uh, for Marine OCS. Um, if you're probably not old enough to remember, but that's right around the time that the Marine Corps had a big drawdown. Uh, my class got canceled. I had a high school teacher that was a, a former naval officer. He encouraged me to go back to the Navy and see. Went and took the test. They said, "Hey, would you like to go to Aviation Officer Candidate School?" And I said, "Do I get a commission?" They said, "Yep." So uh, about a month later, I found myself down at uh, Quanti- or at uh, Pensacola getting introduced to the uh, Marine drill instructors that ran the AOCS program. And, um, you know, 90 days later, I was a, uh, a naval officer and then started flight school in Pensacola, uh, went through the, uh, the pipeline for naval flight officers, uh, graduated down there, got selected for F-14s on the West Coast, went out to... NAS Miramar right at the uh, right at the introduction of Top Gun, the movie coming out. Um, what? So this is what, 1988, 1989, something like that? Uh, I, I left there in 86. Uh, so uh, one of the coolest things uh, during flight school was uh, Top Gun, the Top Gun premiere. The, the military uh, sold out the theater in Pensacola and uh, went and saw the screening of Top Gun with um, basically all naval aviators or people associated with naval a- aviation. So uh, it was pretty uh, that's, raucous. That's Got to Miramar cool. at, at the peak <laughs> of the uh, Top Gun frenzy. Uh, and so went through the rag at, uh, at Miramar, went to my first squadron, which uh, was newly a newly commissioned squadron, VF-191, the Hellcats. Um, we lasted about 10 months. Then they decommissioned us and decided that they were going to draw down the forces of the Navy. I got reassigned to VF-213. I did a world cruise on the uh, USS Enterprise uh, around the world, which is fairly unusual for cruises. Um, And then about eight months later, I did the inaugural cruise on the USS Abraham Lincoln, uh, brought her out of the yards on the the East Coast and brought her around to the West Coast. Uh, And then I got reassigned to shore duty shortly after that and went up to what used to be called uh, PMTC, the Pacific Missile Test Center, uh, did flight testing for the F-14 and for a bunch of the missile systems uh, at at the uh, 
um, PMTC up in Ventura, California. And then that's where I got out. What uh, can you tell us what your call sign was? Critter. I have to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You either you either get a call sign based on your name or you get a call sign based on doing something stupid. That's uh, that's my experience. Yeah, that checks. Yeah, that's I had fantastic. a good buddy. His uh, his call sign was Rhubar. Uh, he was in uh, he was on Liberty in Australia, and instead of calling them brush guards over there on the front of your truck, they call them rhubars for kangaroo bars. And okay. uh, he he had uh, he had been enjoying the local hospitality one evening. And if you're not familiar with Australia, they drive on the wrong side of the road. So uh, as an American, we look left, we look right, we look back left, and we step out onto the street. He did exactly that and got hit. Uh, from the right hand side by a truck. Uh, luckily, he was uh, he was relaxed enough that he didn't get seriously hurt, but he did get a new call sign. Uh, from then on, he was rhubarb. That's so. outstanding. Yeah, <laughs> just went ragdoll. As a paramedic, yeah. it's it's always shocking to me that you can take people uh, who have been inebriated oh. to a certain point where the human body just hangs out, takes punishment, moves on, no big deal. Uh, I've, I've seen some people that had no business being alive, but they were so chill. They were so out of it that, uh, yeah, they survived things like that. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Crazy. So you, so 10 years in the Navy, what was your, uh, what was your separation rank? Uh, well, I got out, uh, I was actually a selected for Lieutenant commander. I got promoted to Lieutenant commander about, um, two months after I separated. I don't know if you remember, but the big tail hook scandal of 1991, uh, we were still under uh, all promotions had to be reviewed by Congress. So even though the selection boards would make their their picks, it took a it took two to three, four months to get through Congress to get the OK on promotions. So um, on on paper, I'm actually a lieutenant commander when I retired. Love it. OK, fair enough. So uh, basically no life experience before going into any additional FBI stuff. Right. And you just just basically freshly born hatched out of the egg. <laughs> nope. I'd never, uh, you know, never even, uh, <laughs> talked about the FBI. Uh, I know a couple guys were looking at it when I got out. Um, and I was kind of right at the cusp. Uh, that's right around the time the FBI changed the requirement from 35 to 37. So, okay. uh, I got out in 94. I was 34 years old at the time. Uh, so I was kind of on that cusp and then they changed it to 37 and, uh, in 1996, uh, I was teaching, uh, karate at a karate school, um, part-time while I was still working, uh, a, a friend of mine that I had grown up, uh, doing karate with had a school and they were injured. And so I went in and was, uh, the instructor for, uh, quite a while and introduced me to an FBI agent and, got to talking and said, Hey, you should, you should put in your package and see what happens. So I went through the process and lo and behold, I got selected. And, uh, in, uh, 1996, I found myself down at Quantico going through a uh, new agents training. What was the, uh, what was the pre, you know, between application and selection, what was that time frame for you? And, and did you feel like it was a rigorous process at the time? Uh, I felt it was kind of an onerous process. I'm not sure, sure. rigorous would, uh, it was an onerous process. Um, I actually got through the, the, uh, the process fairly quick. I, I want to say that I took the initial FBI, um, test, the, the, 
written test that you all, you know, you took um, yep. in September and in September of 95. And I was there in April of 96. So the process went fairly fast for me. Um, sure. But at the, at the time I went through, <clears throat> they were putting through classes of 50 agents every two weeks. Wow. So um, what was your class number? Uh, 9612. 9612. So you I always were get probably... confused. 0885 was my, uh, was my AOCS class. So yes. uh, those, those get was my class. They get burned into your brains and you got to, but you got to figure out which one it is because it's in a filing cabinet somewhere in there. I know it. Um, <laughs> exactly. All right. So, uh, so you'd been through some, I'm, I'm going to say it was rigorous. I, I have to assume it was for, for flight school. They obviously select people that are very capable to fly on fighter jets. That's not a, um, that's not where they send the scrubs. And um, so you went through that and you've obviously spent time in martial arts. Uh, what is, what is your, uh, your belt in, in karate or what was it that you were holding? Uh, I'm a knee on in, in uh, Shorinaru karate. Okay. And so you've experienced some physical difficulty. You've probably been hit in the face in your life. Um, you, you, we were talking, we were talking before we started recording, but you went to Sears school, you know what it's like to get abused a little bit and slapped around. Cause I know they like to mess with the pilots a lot. When I was at Sears school, they, uh, they made one of the, uh, the pilots, a, uh, the senior ranking agent or the senior ranking officer rather. And one of the funniest things I'll just share this. Cause I think it's hilarious. I think he was a captain in the air force, um, which is like the, it's like the Navy of the sky, as far as I understand it. And uh, they took this poor guy who, like I said, he's, he was a BJJ type dude and he thought he was super tough and he rolled with some of our, my buddies and, you know, got kind of choked out a couple of times. And anyway, he's the senior ranking officer and um, they're telling everybody, you know, you have to stand at the position of attention or respect or whatever it is. And you must salute the flag of shit Stanistan or whatever the name of the thing is that they have. I don't, they have this silly little deal, right? The whole Russian, it was all cold war stuff. And he comes running out of this little hut where they were abusing him. I don't know if he was supposed to do this or what, or if they let him go, but he comes running out and he's screaming at all the airmen that are out there on the field that are standing in the freezing cold and standing at the position of respect, getting smacked around. And he screams something like, no Americans will respect the flag of whatever stand to stand. And uh, someone hit him in the back and he goes, you know, sprawling across this like gravel in Spokane, Washington, it's up in the, you know, the mountain area. And they grabbed him by both ankles. Two guys go and they grab him and they do the, you know, the prison guard thing and they drag him back and he dug his fingers into the gravel. I have no idea what possessed this guy to do this, but he was really in role. And he just left these like handprints just being dragged across the yard, like yelling, no Americans will respect it. He was so into it. I was really, I, I loved it because you got to love somebody that just takes their role seriously. Um, and he was getting the crap beat out of him. So, you know, fair play. But yeah, they dragged him back and he's just leaving these handprints. I just saw these scratch marks of 10 fingers dug into the dirt and like all the gravel displaced. And I thought like, this guy's getting a much harder go of it than I did. Like they put me in a bucket and filled it with water. But this poor guy was just getting beaten, you know, in his underwear. Um, anyway, good for him. So you've seen some hard things. You go to Quantico. What was your impression? Was this a gentleman's school or was this something that they challenged you? Uh, you know, I was very, uh, I, I got to say, I was a little disappointed when I went to um Quantico. I was under the impression it was a military school. You show up mm -hmm. the first day, uh, you do the in-doc requirements. If you don't pass the in-doc requirements, you get a bus ticket home. Um, out of That's my 50, yeah, out of the 50 people in my class. And uh, I was I was older at the time. Like I said, uh, that was 1996. I was 35 years old, almost 36 at the time. So I took it seriously. I got my ass in shape. Uh, you know, and I, I kind of, uh, tailored my workouts to, uh, 
what the requirements were at that time. At that time, it was two mile run, push ups, uh, sit ups, pull ups, and then this goofy ass shuttle run. Can I, I'm sorry right. for the swearing. I'll try and curtail that. Uh, but this goofy shuttle run that we did. And so I got, I got myself in shape for those events. That's what I did. Right. I quit lifting. That's what I was doing. Uh, because I was fully under the, the, the understanding that if I didn't pass it, they would send me home and that I screwed away my opportunity. So, uh, when I got down there and 25% of my class didn't pass the fit test, um, and it was obvious to me that some of them had never run two miles in their life up to that point. Uh, that worried me a little bit about wh- how how serious they were taking the whole process and what kind of employee they would be in the future. Yeah, I think that was the same. So I had the same experience at, as age. I came in at 35, almost 36 years old. Um, you know, one of the oldest guys in my class, for whatever reason, we had an exception. There was a guy who was 49 who was prior army and prior bureau. I didn't understand that, but um yeah, I wore my most smokable suit on the Sunday that I show up. I thought I was going to get dropped in the blues like I did when I was in the Air Force and I was an enlisted <laughs> guy. I had a very different um, you know, experience, but I went through the pararescue pipeline. And you know, when you show up at a new uh, unit or you show up to a new training school, it doesn't matter if you're reporting in your blues, they're going to smoke your balls off. That's what they do. And so, and if you don't meet muster, if you don't you know, pass the fit test that day, you're packing your bags and you're going back home. I, I, I remember going to uh, air traffic control school and um, literally- the first day, I think we had six guys wash out of the program and they'd already been through a selection. Like they already had shown that they could do it. We went and did what's called the Air Force Special Operations Command uh, fit test and they didn't pass muster because they were under pressure. We had guys that were puking in their shirts because it's so nerve wracking. Like it's totally silent. The pushups are, you know, and it's very different than the FBI Academy, obviously, but it's a military thing where there's guys standing at the position of attention, puking in their shirts and their PTs. And they're so nervous standing still. And then they go and they don't do enough pushups, even though they're studs, like even though they look like He-Man. And, um, and yeah, the FBI Academy is like some heavy set lady who works in support at headquarters was like handing me a folder and welcome me. And I'm looking for someone to punch me out of my left corner of my eye. Nobody hit me. Uh, and I think you and I had the same experience. We showed up and it's like, well, where's the difficulty? Uh, and, and how come no one else took it seriously the way that you and I obviously did? Um, and, and that's not to say other people didn't, I'm sure there were people in your classmates, but like you say, 25% is a big chunk. So and that's not to say that it wasn't difficult. You know, the academic uh, portion sure. is fairly rigorous. Uh, um, as I tell my guys now when they go to the academy and the advice I gave uh, guys in the FBI when they were going to the academy, there's there's three basic things that will get you kicked out of the academy. Academics, firearms, and physical fitness. Mm-hmm. And the only one that's under your control, you can't pre-study for any of the stuff that they you're going to do at the academy. And if you go out and start shooting, you pick up bad habits and you don't shoot according to how they teach you. Uh, so the only thing I could control was my physical fitness. And I figured I- I'm going to be able to walk through whatever they throw in front of me. Uh, yep. It's not going to be hard. And that way I can concentrate on academics and firearms. And yep. they got world-class instructors down there. Um, they can teach you how to shoot unless you're a complete spaz. Uh, in which case you probably shouldn't be walking around with a gun, but, Amen. Uh, and, and the academic instructors are not there to wash you out. They're there to teach you the material so that you know and understand the material and you can regurgitate the material, uh, in a court of law. So, um, yep. yeah, I, I mean, God bless it. Any place that I go that they're bringing ammo out on a golf court, I, I'm going to go there. I'll sign up for that all day long. So yeah, you and me uh, both, that's like, not bad, but, 
the military guys in the group, it was like summer camp. I'm sure it was for you. Uh, I would yep. get up in the morning with a group of former military guys. We'd PT uh, before breakfast. We'd go down, have a leisurely breakfast. We'd be in our seats 10 minutes beforehand. Uh, you know, some of the prior accountants and attorneys would scramble into class one minute before the bell rang, uh, looking disheveled, and they didn't get breakfast because, you know, it was just a rough night being able to get their 10 hours of sleep and, you know, with their little whoopee. So, um, amen. Yeah, that's all true. I don't want to live on the academy too long. I am curious, did they um, did they teach any specific s- uh, federal statutes, your awareness or your your recollection? Uh, I don't recall. Uh, it was more generalized uh, investigative techniques, you know, the white collar, the legal. We did talk about statutes in the Constitution uh, quite a bit. Uh, we had a very good legal instructor, um, uh, Mr. Hall, uh, who is mm-hmm. a legend down there, had been in, been there for quite a while and was uh, uh, a very, very good instructor. So um, I thought I thought the academics that we got were were good. Um, I think they left the specifics to whatever squad you got assigned in your first office, then to dig into the specific statutes that uh, whatever particular uh, investigation you went into. Okay. And that, and so that hasn't changed a whole lot. Like I said, I always tell people, it's funny that I think with state law enforcement officers, they learn the code book for the state. That's, that's what they do all day long. They have to know what the, the, uh, you know, the misdemeanor and the felony offenses look like if they're doing patrol, they have to walk out and have that knowledge. Uh, and the Bureau doesn't teach federal statutes nearly as much. We do constitutional law. I think that's probably kind of what we're talking about. Same thing, principles yep. of investigation, you know, where you legally can and cannot search and so on, um, search warrant exceptions and, and, and things like that. And then, you go out to a substantive squad and you really focus kind of in a narrow niche worth of whether it's white collar or child trafficking or whatever else you learn those statutes and kind of what the elements of those crimes are. Is that pretty much your experience? Yeah. Yep. I agree with that. I always talk to my deputies and tell them that you have way more legal authority. In fact, I had this conversation in the parking lot yesterday. You have way more legal authority than any federal agent does because I never, uh, I won't say never, but it was a rare exception that I arrested somebody on probable cause. Uh, yes. I always had an arrest warrant in my possession 99.9% of the time uh, before I made an arrest. My guys are arresting people day in and day out without any paper in their hand. Uh, and so I love, they have so much I, more authority. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I told that to a neighbor one time. He was like, you know, I think I'm being followed by the feds. And I was like, well, you're totally safe from being arrested, you know, for a long time. That's not the way it works. <laughs> May, um Sheriff, maybe you can kind of, because I, I love that you have both sides of this coin now that you've gone from the federal side where I, I think uh, decidedly our, our on-the-spot authorities are very limited to what your guys are doing, where their majority of their arrests and um, and detentions are going to be based on probable cause they develop in the field. Maybe you can kind of compare and contrast that for us for people to really get that. I, I don't think that's hammered home. I actually got a question about it on social media, and it's just like... People don't get that a, that an FBI agent is not really empowered to go to go grab you uh, while you're doing something. That's not how we operate. So maybe you can kind of flesh that out for people. Yeah, if you really want to put a, a assistant United States attorney into anaphylactic shock, is call him up on the phone and say, "Hey, I just arrested somebody on probable cause. I need to get you know I need to get them before a magistrate," and they'll lose their mind. That's uh, right. I can tell you that the the several times that I arrested somebody on probable cause, I ran a cyber squad in Milwaukee for a couple of years, and we did a lot of child pornography cases. And if I got a disclosure that somebody was uh, active, actively molesting a child, when we went out and did a search warrant, 
you know, because we we know they were searching child pornography sites, they're trading child pornography. If we went out and during their, uh, it, you know, when we're talking to them, if they disclosed that they were actively molesting somebody either within the family or a neighbor or anything like that, I made it my habit that we arrested them on probable cause. Uh, and if I got any pushback from the U.S. attorney, I usually call the local and the locals would be more than willing to take those guys into custody. Uh, but once we got that uh, relationship with the U.S. attorney, they started going along with us on on arresting those because it it was a safety issue. We had to get that person out of the community. That's a that's a safety issue to the community. So, um, yeah, we by the time we got out there, we've developed months and months and months of probable cause in order to get our search warrant affidavit. Uh, everything is lined out. We have paper up the wazoo. We've been in front of a magistrate. We've been in front of a court. Uh, my guys walk up to a vehicle. They're stopping for ex expired tabs. And now they run into an individual that maybe has an outstanding warrant or has a bunch of crap in the back that looks like it's stolen or mm -hmm. God knows what's going on with them. And they've got to develop that probable cause to make a decision. Um, yep. And in the state of Washington, that's changed dramatically over the last 18 months. But basically, they make that decision to take them into custody. And now they have to do the investigation in order to justify that probable cause and go to that hearing and justify their arrest to make sure that it was a good arrest. So it, it, it's much, much different. I mean, you and I both know that by the time we got around to arresting somebody, I know what they were going to have for breakfast. I know who they hung out with for the last 16 days. I knew what color their yeah. underwear was going to be when they got up that morning. And I knew exactly where they were going to be. And I took six of my heavily armed friends to go arrest them. Much different than a deputy stopping. You know, I've got 1,300 square miles. I got a deputy that's stopping a car at two o'clock in the morning that's got a headlight out. And he has no idea what he's walking up to. And he's all by himself. And his nearest backup is 45 minutes away. Uh, yeah, so definitely. a much different animal. I always tell people that, uh, you know, federal law enforcement is certainly not first responders, despite the fact that they love to kind of claim to be part of that community. Um, they're second responders at best and usually third responders that the first responder might be an ambulance and something like that. Uh, you know, the second responder or first first part B is going to be your your local law enforcement that's going to do it. And if there is a federal crime that we may develop, it's going to happen way, way later. And it's going to be under our circumstances. We got no problem waiting to grab you another day. We don't have to run you down right now. But that's not the, the charge of local law enforcement. They're tasked with public safety, whereas the FBI is tasked with investigations. And those are very long term and they tend to last, you know, as long as they need to. Um, as we've seen, I'm sure I'm sure you've seen some of those investigations that go on decades and, <laughs> and, and you can't figure out how it's like, is anyone ever going to bring this to a conclusion? Is there a reason for this at some point? Uh, difficult. Um, all right. So I want to kind of just kind of touch the high points. If you gave me kind of the bullet points that you were in for 22 years, there's a lot of material there. We won't be able to be able to dig it all. So uh, give me your, maybe your offices, what you were assigned to highlights at that. If you want to kind of walk me through it and we'll get uh, to where your whistleblower activity happened and and how weird that got after a, you know, an otherwise... I would say uh, respected career where you didn't have any problems. It, it sounded like. Uh, so I got assigned to Milwaukee out of the Academy back when I went through the Academy. Uh, there are 57 field offices, as you know, uh, we got a list one through 57, you ranked them one through 57 and you got one of your choices. Uh, I think Milwaukee was 43rd on my, on my list. Uh, Perfect. Never, never had been there. Didn't you couldn't find it on the map when it was time to put my pin in. 
but got to Milwaukee. Um, back in those days, we had one squad that worked foreign counterintelligence, international terrorism, domestic terrorism, and civil rights. They did all uh, and that. That's where, yeah, they did all that. One squad. Whoa. Uh, so that gives you the priority of what it was pre-9-11. Right. Uh, and we had a fairly robust uh, um Palestinian community in Milwaukee. Uh, so we okay. had some actual IT stuff going on. Uh, we also had a Russian tractor factory in uh, in Milwaukee, Belarus. And so we had actual uh, IOs, intelligence op- Russian intelligence officers coming and going in Milwaukee quite frequently. So um, actually, both those programs were fairly robust at the time, and they actually had some pretty good cases. I got assigned to that uh, was not what I came into the FBI to do. Uh, I wanted to put bad guys in jail. Um, I may be a mistake at the time, but I got to say that my, uh, my supervisor, uh, respected it. Uh, I went to my supervisor, told uh, her that this is not what I want to work. I have no interest in this. Uh, she told me, you give me one good solid year and I will support you forever, wherever you want to go. If you do a good job. And And that's the old school way. I, I feel like that, that doesn't happen anymore for what it's worth. Um, yep. but, but that, that's what kind of leadership looks like, I feel like, uh, or at least good management at the very minimum. Yeah. Uh, and a year later, uh, I kind of ingrained myself back in those days. The VCMO squad was the squad that everybody wanted right, to get you on. Uh, flesh out the, uh, the acronym. Uh, for folks. I'm sorry. Uh, the violent crimes, uh, squad, uh, they handled bank robberies, kidnappings, uh, and the fugitive work, uh, in the yep. Milwaukee office. Uh, most of those guys were SWAT guys. Most of them were firearms instructors. Uh, back in those days, I talked to my my boss and I said, hey, you know, there's there's a multitude of opportunities to go get your four yearly qualifications in, as you know. And some people go to four qualifications. I asked my supervisor, do you have any problem with me going to every firearm shoot? I think it's a perishable skill. I'm not yep. that good at it, you know, and uh She's like, no, as long as you're getting your work done, go to every one of them. And so that was kind of your tryout back in those days. If you could shoot and you were fairly confident, you didn't you didn't endanger your life or anybody else's life when you were at the firearms range. The SWAT guys kind of took notice. I got noticed. And uh, a year later, I'm over on the uh, violent crimes fugitive task force chasing chasing fugitives around. Best job in the in the world Uh, at the. Yeah, at the time that you were doing that, when you got over to Vicmo, which um, that's kind of the the thing I think a lot of guys, at least like me, guys like you, signed up to do. That's that's the job that we envisioned when we signed up. We thought we were going to run down bad guys, chase fugitive, go get bank robbers, all those kind of things. The classic yep. sort of FBI mission from the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, the stuff you see on TV. Did you was that thought of well? Was that a premier uh, space to be, or was that considered kind of an also ran where the real stuff was something else? Where was the real, well, that, the quote unquote, real work of the bureau? No, that was back in the day when, uh, when, when drugs and violent crime were kind of the the bread and butter of the FBI. When I first okay. got in, that was still considered. Uh, you know, we had we had a gang squad, we had a drug squad, and we had a violent crime squad at that time. Um, I think Milwaukee has one gang, drug, violent crime squad at this point. Yep. Uh, I'm sure so, they're busy too. Yeah. So that was considered, you know, you, you kind of had to be invited to get over there. And um, I, I mean, we, and we were busy. So to give you an idea, uh, when I was on uh, the fugitive task force, we celebrated uh, collecting our 1000th 
2,000 and 3,000 arrests. Wow. So we were busy. Um, I'll yeah. put my arrest record up against anybody in the Bureau in the last 20 years. Uh, Milwaukee is a dangerous city, uh, and there's plenty of fugitives there. So um, we did that. Uh, I did that for about a year, and I made the mistake of telling my boss, I said, you know, I think it would be really good for me to work a bank robbery from start to finish so that I understand the legal process <laughs> and I get some time in court. And about four months later, I was the bank robbery coordinator. So that's exactly the, uh, how that job happens. <laughs> yeah. So I was the bank robbery coordinator uh, for about the next five years. Uh, obviously, I still went out on fugitive stuff when they were looking for bodies. And then uh, just prior to 9-11, uh, I got called into the SAC's office and he said, Hey, we're going to start up this new thing called a joint terrorism task force. And, uh, what do you think? You know, we want some guys with some good experience. I said, completely not interested. I'm happy as a clam where I'm at. Uh, you know, I like working bank robbers. I think I'm doing a good job. Uh, I'm, I'm not your guy. And he said, okay, uh, you start on Monday and, uh, classic, classic FBI trap there. Yeah. And take, so take the uninterested I, parties and put them in charge of things they don't want to do. Yeah. So I got moved to the Joint Terrorism Task Force. I want to say March or April of 2001. And then that's uh, OK. That was timely then. Yeah. And then, uh, as we all know, uh, 2001 happened and boom. Um, yep. So that would be me, about five months later. Over the, yeah. Meanwhile, over the course of my career, uh, just because it's important in the Justin Slaby case and later in my whistleblower stuff, uh, I became, uh, in fact, I, I became a uh, defensive tactics instructor so fast that when I was back at the academy for defensive tactics instructor school, uh, a number of the instructors asked me, uh, did you get hurt? Because I thought you graduated already. Right. <laughs> so, you look like you look like uh, a washback. I was like, uh, no, no, I'm back here for an in-service. Uh, yeah. So I became a defensive tactics instructor, um, uh, became a SWAT guy. I then went to firearms instructor school, became a firearms instructor. I then went back and became a tactical instructor, uh, a master. Uh, I became a police instructor. And uh, eventually in my career, I became a one. I think there's about 40 or 50 in the history of the FBI. I became a master police instructor. Um teaching all kinds of crap uh as they say was, those that can't do teach sure was the was the let's program was that what it was called at the time did you guys have something like that and let's or something yep let's law enforcement training for safety and survival and did you go around and do some of those courses around the country i did i taught uh at the time that uh the slavey thing kicked off i was probably teaching uh somewhere between 10 and 20 classes a year in okay. in and around the state of uh, Wisconsin, and uh, once in a while, I'd go down and help out at the uh, uh, the FBI range in Chicago because I knew those guys down there as well. Okay, and you're so getting I all these qualifications. SWAT schools. Yeah, were you going back and forth to Quantico as well and upping some of these certs? Is that kind of how that played out then, or is it different? Yeah, that's exactly how it plays out. Uh, you know, back then to be a tactical instructor, you had to be a SWAT guy defensive tactics and a firearms instructor. So that was kind of a, a small cadre. of, um, yep. And then just over time, you became a let's instructor uh, going around teaching let's classes. I was one of the first guys that uh, went back and did the, um, the school for, Oh God, I'm going to, I'm going to blank on it. I'm getting old and I can't remember crap. 
There's too many, basic, too many names. Basically, the active shooter program that was developed by uh, University of Texas. That's uh, alert. Went through yep. Alert. I'm sorry. There you yep. go. Uh, I know Katie Schweit is now responsible for uh, starting that program. But that program was started early on. Uh, I went back and got tapped for that just because of my my background. Yeah. And, and so for folks who don't know, Alert is spelled with two R's and it's a program out of Texas State University that they developed after the Columbine shootings. It's a direct to threat type of uh, law enforcement reaction training so that people know how to respond to active shooters. It's something that would have been very helpful. Apparently, a number of guys at Uvalde actually did have that training. I've gone through it. I think it's really good. Um, and the guys that are certified to teach it, I think, do a very good service to law enforcement, whether they're state, local, federal, knowing how to walk into a building and and go directly to where the bad thing is happening and try to stop it is it's all of our duties. It's what we all kind of swore to. That's, that's the ultimate piece. I think of what uh, being a, a peace officer or being a federal agent is involved in. If, if you got to go do it, um, I'll, I'll throw, throw this at you. One of my buddies was saying, um, if you got to die doing something like that, going after, you know, someone who's trying to kill kids, you know, wh- what else are you saving it for? Right. Uh, do you want to die in a hospital bed where you're peeing yourself or would you rather go down and, and and be known that you know some maybe you maybe you leave children behind maybe you leave a wife behind that's something we all kind of know is a possibility definitely more real for your deputies than 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 you or I when we were agents um but like that's that's kind of the ultimate that's your super bowl if it comes up so um yep. if people have and, never and seen a, and, yeah. it, it it's very important for uh the position that I'm in now I think it's it's extremely important because when we respond to an event uh there None of our agencies are big enough to respond individually. So we're going to sure. be responding with Walla Walla PD, College Place PD, maybe even a wildlife officer, a state patrol officer. And we need everybody on the same page of music. And that's really what Alert did is it was the standard by which all things were going to be measured at that point. So everybody knew what the response was and how to go together. And it didn't matter what color uniform you had on. Everybody was yep. in the same playbook. What's interesting is um, I'm just realizing this right now, but 9-11 gave us the NIMS system, the National Incident Management System that basically created on-scene commanders and and let people realize how to respond. I, I think I'm correct about that. I, I might be off. We'll have to <laughs> fact check me later. But I, I believe that that's about when it kind of was uh, was introduced. And so that gave us a commonality of, of, of radio frequencies and um, the unified structure of command. And so people knew who could step in and take each role. And I feel like Alert actually did the same thing for law enforcement for active shooters, which is kind of the same kind of, you know, large local catastrophe, the mass casualty type of event that could happen. Um, and and it's really important. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, we, we didn't see it play out well in Texas, but it has been used very effectively by some of these guys that, that did exercise that training. It's obviously super important in your role. Um, let's let's kind of move. So uh, I wanted to paint the picture. You're back and forth to Quantico. You're not a problem child in the FBI by any means. Um, nope. Shortly after, uh, I would say a year, maybe a year after 9-11, I get tapped. Uh, um, a couple guys in the office, a couple tech agents approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in becoming a tech agent. Uh, at that point, I was looking for an escape from the JTTF. It, it really didn't align with what my goals were in the FBI. Uh, and so I said, yeah. So I started the training. As you know, it's pretty arduous uh, to become a tech agent. And about a year and a half later, I think I got assigned down to the tech squad full time, got to do some super cool stuff. Um, as everybody always asks you, oh, you were an FBI agent. You can't talk about what you did. 
Um, I always say that's bullshit. I worked violent crime. I can tell you everything that I did. Yeah, uh, once I became tech a tech stuff. agent. Yeah. Once I became a tech agent, there is some super cool stuff that I did that I can never talk about. But, uh, you know, basically I got to break into people's houses, install microphones and cameras and steal cars and uh, just do a lot of super cool stuff. Um, for people's awareness, a tech agent is somebody that that doesn't work case. You were a full-time tech agent. Is that right? Full-time. Yep. So we call them TTAs or technically trained agents. It's a, it's a 18 month, as you mentioned, kind of pipeline of, of a learning a bunch of skill sets that involves compromising electronics. And uh, some of the things that, you know, they, they're responsible for pull cameras, which are going to be these remote cameras that we can monitor and setting up networks where we can intercept certain types of frequencies and so on. Um, so they do the, uh, the technical exploitation of some of the complex criminal cases and national security cases. And moreover, when you say breaking into uh, people's houses and stealing cars and all this, these are all with uh, federal paperwork saying that you have the authorization to <laughs> do this. So I just, yeah, there's there are legal processes. And usually the standard to be able to do these is as we invade more privacy, there should be more and more scrutiny and probable cause, which I, I'm sure was the way you experienced it as well. Yes. I just I just like covering that. Everyone has this expectation that, you know, we're not wild cowboys. The FBI is, if they're anything, they are uh, very bookwormish and very paperwork oriented uh, until maybe recently when they started pencil whipping some of this stuff and falsifying. Um, I, I don't think that's generally the case for most people. A lot of there's a lot of honor in doing some of these things. So, And if you're a tech agent and you look at the events of the last, you know, five, six years, I'm horrified because I know. Uh, the hoops that I jumped through to make sure that I did it correctly and that we had all the paperwork involved and we could back up why we went in because we took that very seriously. Uh, yep. It's the most intrusive investigative technique that we have. And um, for people to take that so lightly that you can have 14 mistakes on a FISA application, it is, I, I don't it's believe that ha to be true. And uh, yep. you can't convince me that, that that's true. And those people, quite frankly, should be fired. Yeah. And uh, some of them managed to get their what their law licenses back and, and things like that when they obviously lied on legal process. So, you know, the clients yes. myths and the things like that. So um, and, and that's one of the reasons why we're, we're chatting right now is that there was I think there has been a, a fall from honor. People who took their oath less seriously or my buddy Steve Friend has now talked about it as a terms of service update on their iPhone. You know, it's check the box. They swore. Uh, <laughs> Phil once told me producer Phil once told me that, you know, they swore an oath to their resume. Um, but not to the Constitution the way that I think you and I believe that it should be done. Um, I, I don't mean to sober up that piece, but I know people get really nervous when you start talking about these intrusive abilities. And and they are an awesome responsibility and they are an awesome power. And in the right hands of people who are truly honorable, it's a, it's a great it's a great capability to keep people safe and to do the, the the job that we were sworn to do. And in the wrong hands, it is a, a massive political exploitation tool and it's a weapon to be wielded against people who are, you know, they're not even your enemies. They're just ideologically opposed to you. That's really scary stuff. Um, so one of the things that let, let's get into your, uh, you know, I think we've set kind of the stage of your, a little bit of your career. I want to talk about your whistleblower experience. You, you mentioned to me that you kind of got backed into it backwards and, and we just talked about it before we started recording. It's a truly wild you know, getting roped into that. You're doing the dream. You know, you got to do the work you wanted to do. You got to move to the squads you wanted to do. You got to do the trainings you wanted to do. That all sounds amazing. And then, you know, how did, how did you come across uh, Justin Slaby and how did you get roped into this, this shenanigans? Uh, you know, so I, I was kind of a, uh, outspoken proponent of physical fitness in the office. Uh, you know, always participated in the physical fitness program. Uh, I've kind of seen it come and go. 
Uh, it was mandatory participation. When I first joined the Bureau, it wasn't mandatory that you actually pass it, but you had to participate. Uh, the old guys would walk the two miles smoking a cigar the whole time. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, at the time, I had actually been promoted. I was the uh, I was the cyber supervisor in Milwaukee. I was overseeing uh, a cyber squad that did uh, child pornography cases. We also did uh, national security cyber cases at that time. We, we ran the gamut on all the stuff. Actually, uh, the CART squad, which are the guys that exploit hard drives and computers and telephones and all that kind of stuff that get collected for evidence. Um, uh, I oversaw those guys. And uh, the applicant coordinator had me give physical fitness tests to applicants that were going through. So sure. no different than any other, uh, any other applicant that I'd ever seen. I come down to my desk uh, one day and, you know, there's a note from the applicant coordinator. Hey, can you contact this guy and put him through a physical fitness test? Yeah, no problem. Uh, called him up, set a date and time. Uh, being a, a astute observer uh, and trained investigator, when we got there, I noticed that he was missing a hand. Uh, oh, that's a that's a clue. Yeah, more to the point, he had a mechanical hand. Uh, okay. in, in place of his, uh, his left hand. And so, uh, you know, you don't get a whole lot of background on him. So in small talk, as you know, uh, when I came in the bureau, everybody is either a subject, a victim or a source, uh, yep. and they can go from one to the other at the, at the t drop of a hat. So, right. uh, I, ch I chat with everybody. That's what we're trained to do. We're, we're communicators. We communicate. Uh, so I started drawing out find out he's a former army ranger. Uh, I, I never really got into the whole army thing and I don't understand it to this day, even though I've, I've been exposed to it multiple times. Uh, but, uh, he was a 75th ranger regiment, uh, which is a fairly elite group of special forces guys. It's not, yeah. And if uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, you know, guys who are, who are ranger tabbed will, will sometimes call rangers guys who are from the ranger battalion. will say that you're not a ranger unless you served in the ranger job, but 75th ranger battalion, um, you know, it answers underneath SOCOM and it is legitimately, you know, they're the finest light infantry in the world. I would say, um, I have friends who've gone through that training and guys who have served in those roles. I've got guys who have tabs. And, so tab or, or scroll is always the question when, when they say ranger, um, if you're, if you're around these guys and that's kind of the, that's kind of the nut check for the tabbed guys, when the scroll guys give it to them, then and it's all good ribbing. And I think that, you know, there are certainly people who are not honorable that went through ranger school and, and came out and they, they have the tab, um, I, I won't short any of it. I, it sounds like starvation training. It sounds like a lot of the hard stuff that you go do in the woods, but this is not a soft individual. This is not a man who has not seen difficulty. And obviously he served and lost a hand doing the job. He saw, he saw the action that he signed up to go, you know, go, uh, go be part of. Yeah. So I got the whole tab wear tab bearer. Uh, right, right, right. Of course. Yeah. That's you the know, thing. I get like, that from the army guys all the time. I just I give it. them shit about it. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Uh, you're in the Navy. But, you're, you're just yeah. floating around. So we had a, you know, we had a conversation, uh, obviously, uh, you know, we will rib each other, you know, being a zoomie or, you know, a, a, a swabby or whatever. But when it comes down to it, I take a, a personal interest in the former military guys, no matter even if they're Coast Guard guys, I take an interest in them. Uh, even if so. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no punching there. Uh, but uh, anybody, you know, we can give each other shit, but low, you know, low be it. 
tries to jump in that was never in the military and give a military member crap about their their service. So uh, yeah. he he walked through the physical fitness test. I noticed his prosthetic uh, doesn't extend beyond his elbow. It's only on the forearm. It's kind of a friction fit uh, suction cup kind of thing. Um, and obviously, I notice it when he's doing his push ups. Obviously. Uh, I shouldn't say tough for him um, to interlace his fingers and stuff like that uh, sure. on the sit-ups. And then when we get to the pull-ups, I'm like, how, what in the heck's going to happen here? And he reaches in his bag and he, he pulls out a different prosthetic um, and changes it to a hook basically and yes. proceeds to do basically 14 one-arm pull-ups. Uh, you know, he uses his left arm basically for balance because if he puts any, pressure on it, downward pressure, his prosthetic, his arm will pop out of the prosthetic. So right. he, he flies through uh, the fit test like nobody's business. I tell and him how many, how many pull-ups was he supposed to do? Uh, there's no requirement to do pull-ups at that point in that for data. So it's just a participation. You have to do it, correct? correct? Yeah. Okay. And that was, that was the same one I went through as well. There was, you know, there was numbers for the tactical recruit program, but not for anybody that, uh, that was going in for just the regular agent job. Okay, so he, but he's doing one arms. How many one arms? Do you remember how many he did? Several? 14. He did 14 oh. pull ups. So he's a freak. He's a stud, like you yeah. expect. I mean, he's, uh, Justin's probably uh, five, six, five, seven, uh, buck 45, soaking wet. And yeah. probably, you know, at that time, he's probably like, I mean, you know, blonde, just all American kid. Uh, What's and, funny and is, is that. that there's so many special operations guys that fit that. Like everybody sees the six foot eight, like 300 pound operator guy. There's so many guys that are just wiry, small, tough, unbelievably tough carry, you know, they, they carry weight like ants. Uh, the, the top guy out of my PJ in doc class was, uh, was skinny and scrawny like that. And, uh, went on to like a seal team. I think he took, did some roids cause he got real big afterwards, but, but, uh, cause everybody wants to be the big guy, but like so many studs that are just light and and body strong and can just do that yep. stuff so that's, that's awesome um and and it, it it checks the you know it's exactly the kind of guy you want to go have your back who's just a stud and steely um so okay so and he's we, doing we he, talked we talked a little bit about his accident and uh um you weren't in the bureau at the time but i remember when those uh so he lost his hand due to a faulty flashbang as he was getting ready for his overseas. I can't remember which one it was, but, uh, okay. so we started talking about the flashbangs and we had had those same flashbangs in the FBI and that company, uh, I later, later learned, uh, kind of went bankrupt, renamed themselves and then sold those flashbangs to the military, even though they knew they were faulty. And so Perfect. what would happen is tightly in your palm, when you would pull, pull the pin, the striker would go home and it would detonate. And that's exactly what happened to him. So instead of, the, instead of the delay that should have been on it. Right. And so mm -hmm. another interesting thing with that is when they were doing these room entries, he was actually the team leader and the medic. And so he directed the first aid that his team did to him while he was being, you know, while he was incapacitated, basically. Yeah, uh, that's and, and, and the other interesting thing is basically about four hours after this accident happens, here's a, you know, I don't know at the time he's 22, 23 years old or somewhere in there. Uh, they doctor basically walks up to him and says, you have two choices. Uh, we're going to go into the emergency or we're going to go in the operating room. If 
in about 10 minutes here, I can either cut your hand off and we can fit you with prosthetic, in which case I think I can get you 85% of what your hand function was, or I can sew it up, make it look like a, like a hand and it'll be non-functional. Which do you want to do? So wow. I try and imagine making that decision after a traumatic event and you're 22 years old. So all the props to him, he made the decision move forward. And, uh, lo and behold, here he is at the FBI. Um, so in, in our conversations, yeah, I said, Hey, if well, you're in the office and you want to talk, uh, please come down and stop in. I think I had one conversation with him, uh, when he came in mother thing, yep. he stopped down and we kind of talked about our careers. My next dealing with him is when I get ordered to bring weapons over to Marquette university, uh, he had to go through and prove that he could do all the 157 job functions of an FBI agent. And, so uh, I'm going to, I'm going to pause this right here on that, Mark. I'm going to try to re do this reconnection. So let's make a hard cut and, uh, and try to reestablish because I want to get the video. And I think the story of the 157 job functions of an FBI agent is, is a critical and absolutely bizarre situation that Phil and I can all talk about. Okay, so we've just reestablished the connection. I wanted to make sure that uh, Mark was able to tell the story because I think this is a really critical and interesting piece of um, um, how these kind of it's very unusual for an FBI agent to to go through the process that uh, Justin Slaby actually ended up going through. So you were just telling us you went down to Marquette University and you had to bring some things. All this sounds totally unusual, but I'm ready to hear it. So send it for me. Yeah. So uh, I kind of find out after the fact, once I get down there, I'm just told by the applicant coordinator, hey, uh, Justin has to do some occupational therapy stuff uh, and they they need to need to have some weapons. So I gathered up a bunch of red handles, which, you know, are fully functional weapons with the, they're not fully functional. They won't fire, but you can take them apart. They have all the pieces and parts there, uh, except firing pins so that you can handle them safely, um, and kind of teach you, uh, function and assembly of those guns. So I take over a shotgun, a, um, uh, M4 and a, a handgun at that time over to Marquette. I find out that there are um, like a, uh, and I'm somebody fact check me on this. Uh, you can look it up in the FBI, but I think there were 157 job essential skills, you know, lift the 20 pound box above your head or, um, you know, step up on a eight inch riser or whatever. Um, 13 of them have to do with guns, um, pointing a gun, functioning a gun, something like that. So I go over there. Uh, he's got to demonstrate all these job skills to the occupational therapist. Um, on a couple of the, uh, the weapons skills, the occupational therapist didn't understand the language, asked me to demonstrate. Uh, so I demonstrated, explained, you know, what the language was. I, I can't remember to this day, but uh, basically explained what was going on. I did it, and then he had Justin do it. Nowhere on his report does my name ever show up. Uh, so I, I really didn't have any involvement other than bringing those guns over there. Um, and I, I come, come to find out this comes to haunt me later down the road. So gather up the guns. I'm like, okay, well, maybe this is just something because he has a prosthetic. They want to make sure. You know, I'm still believing in the system and the system works and all that kind of good stuff. 
Right. And lo and behold, uh, not long after that, Justin gets an appointment to the academy. So at that point, everybody had signed off that he is a, a, a fully functional applicant and he's ready to go to the academy. And this is a way more rigorous situation than any of us, because obviously I never did that. You never did that. Nobody ever took I us in front did. of it. Yeah. Nobody asked me. I didn't know how many essential functions were. I assume that, uh, you know, zipping up your pants and putting your belt on is also pretty important because you might be wearing a gun on it and you don't want to have your fly open. But nobody uh, had you demonstrate those things. And I certainly didn't. I know Phil didn't. So very, very unusual to put him through that thing and, and potentially discriminatory right there. I, and I probably did one more uh one more test than you did in my application pro process back when I came in, you still had to do the trigger pull test. And Ooh. so I, I did the trigger pull test. I don't know if, uh, Phil, you did that. Yeah. Uh, interesting. So, uh, but that went away, uh, due to some, you know, is discriminatory towards itty bitty agents. And so they, and, and they quit. Tell us it. what the, just out of curiosity, what that is. Cause I, that's so the, the trigger pull test, they would, uh, there was a metal ring. I, I think it was about six inches around and you would have to hold a, um, back then it was a revolver. You would hold it at arm's length out in front of you, keep the barrel inside that ring and pull the trigger as fast as you could for as many times as you could for one minute. You do that right hand and left hand. And what Whoa. it was is it, it was indicative of whether or not you had the hand strength to make it through the firearms program. And yeah. lo and behold, the people that didn't pass that trigger pull test had problems with firearms. So well, we a, got rid that's of That's actually a pretty, yeah, that's a pretty reasonable um, <laughs> estimation of that. I, I've never heard of that. I think it makes sense. It does tell you a lot about somebody's ability to, to and also probably to follow those instructions, which is a basic athletic ability, but um, yeah. all right. So no trigger pull test for me, but uh, obviously a lot more rigorous stuff for this just for Justin Slaby, our, our ranger buddy. So he gets an appointment to the academy. He sent off there. And when did you next hear about him? So uh, my next involvement with him was uh, I, I made a call down to the academy as I did pretty much with every applicant, uh, because, as you know, the scoring. If I score a test, you score a test and Phil scores a test we come up with three different numbers. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that I was always concerned with that I was either being too stringent or too lax when I scored physical fitness tests. So I called down the week after he got to the academy and asked uh, what he scored on his fitness test. And okay. uh, I called the class counselor just because I wanted to compare what our numbers were. Uh, and it probably should have been my first clue, but uh, I've never been accused of being overly bright. Uh, but I got asked a lot of questions that had nothing whatsoever to do with uh, my involvement in his application process. So oh, I was kind of taken aback. But at this point in time, I'm still thinking every, everything is righteous and, you know, there's no concern for anything. And I kind of brushed it off as just, yeah, the person on the other end of the phone is kind of a you know, a knob. So, um, about which we do weeks, hire. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and we've all encountered. So yes. about six weeks later, I happened to be at the Academy for an in-service. Uh, it was a national security cyber in-service. Mm -hmm. And the first morning, uh, and normally I'll check the roster. I don't know if you did this back in your day, but I normally I would check the roster, see if my, any of my classmates are there for an in-service so I can hook up with them, say hi. Uh, but, uh, I'm sitting eating breakfast in the in the chow hall uh, the first morning and Justin comes up and I'm like, oh, shit, I totally forgot he was here. Um, 
kind of dejected, uh, telling me that he's been removed from training, uh, suspe- you know, suspended out of the training. He's kind of in no man's land at that point. Uh, he's pretty down. Uh, yeah. You know, I talked to him uh, during breakfast. I say, hey, let's hook up for lunch. Uh, they got him, you know, making copies and sweeping floors and crap like that. And awesome. uh, so I proceed uh, for the next week to kind of um, hang out with them. I think we went for a couple runs in the evening after classes were over, but I'm there for a 40 hour in service. So, uh, right. he went, he went with me, uh, as is always, I had a couple personal friends down there that were academy instructors. He actually went over with me, uh, with a couple of them and I in- introduced him. Uh, he, you know, it, nothing nefarious. He just happened to be hanging out with me because, uh, he was depressed. We went and had a beer or two in the boardroom. Yeah. Um, didn't think anything of it. Uh, you know, I, I kind of gave him the pep talk. I, I said, I'm sure this is just a, a big misunderstanding. Uh, you'll get through it. They'll put you back in training. Don't worry about it. Uh, it's just a bump in the road. Keep your chin, chin up and, uh, keep pressing on. And, yep. uh, Monday morning, uh, I get, you know, I, I fly back on Friday. I spend the weekend, uh, doing what you do in the weekend and, Monday morning, I'm sitting at my desk and I get a call to come up and see the ASAC. Man, I'm like, okay. So I go up there. So how, just this is uh, what field office are you at? Milwaukee. I'm still in the You're Milwaukee at, Okay, office. still Milwaukee. And how many ASACs does Milwaukee have? Uh, at that point in time, we had two. Okay. So for people's awareness, you know, we have some people that are definitely not FBI that listen to this thing. So every uh, medium and small field office is going to have one special agent in charge. That's the top you know, guy or girl, that's an SES, a senior executive service member. And they all have kind of two lieutenants or three lieutenants, depending on the size of the office. And in that case, it's going to be this ASAC, the assistant special agent in charge. That's somebody that's at the top of the GS pay scale. That's a GS 15. And they are for all intents and purposes, they're a second line supervisor for field agents. And they kind of run the show for their individual, you know, part of the division. So this is this is, you know, as high up as most people have to deal with for any functional kind of information, right? I mean, it's not, you're not having meetings with your ASAC on a daily basis, obviously. No. Well, right, I, so you get- actually I was at that time because I was a supervisor. For sure. Uh, so he was, he was my first line supervisor. Okay. So for first line for you, second line for your, for your, uh, for your agents that you were supervising. So you get called into the ASAC and what's the story? And I'm guessing it's, uh, has to do with a case or something. And I get questioned as to, why I was training Justin when I was back at the Academy and who I talked to. And I'm kind of like, I'm kind of taken completely off guard by this. And so I kind of, I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't, you know, I I wasn't doing any training. I was there for an in-service, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of go back to my desk and I'm like, you know, I didn't particularly care for that ASAC anyway. And uh, so I'm like, as it happens, Yeah. And I'm like, uh, you know, he's just an asshole. So uh, I kind of brushed it off, went back to my work. And later that afternoon, uh, I get called up to the SAC's office, who coincidentally is a classmate of mine uh, from the academy. And I get called up to her office and I kind of get the same mantra, you know, who, why were you training him? you know, what were you doing? Who did you go see? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, 
Uh, first of all, I wasn't training him unless going for a run is considered training, in which case he was probably training me because it was all I could do to keep up with him. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, at that point, I'm about old enough to be his dad. So uh, I'm not really running his ass into the ground. And right. uh, we have a conversation about <clears throat> um, who I went to see and this stuff. And so finally, I said, who's making who's making these allegations that I'm doing this? And she wouldn't tell me and told me that it wasn't important. And I said, well, I, I do believe that it is important because if they're going to make allegations, then they need to make them by name and, and stand behind their allegations because I wasn't doing anything that I'm not authorized to do or, or not warranted to do. So sure. uh, I, I, I think this is a little odd. And so that was really my first clue uh, that I wasn't really on Team America, uh, but it really hadn't sunk in at that point. I thought it was just somebody being an asshole, uh, quite frankly. And um, later on, I found out that they were starting to build the case to discredit me and build their case for dismissing Justin. And and you said Team America. You said I wasn't on Team America, and I'm going to disagree with you there because I I don't think you've ever not been on Team America. Just the interactions <laughs> that we've had, but there is a difference between Team America and Team Bureau. And yes. and this may have been one of the first times that you really butted up against that, and I I butted up against it a little bit sooner, I think, because I saw what happened at Washington Field, and and we know that the Blue Flamers, the the you know the corporate climbers of the FBI, love to just fly into what Washington Field office and make that trip back and forth between headquarters. And I I think that people that are in different field offices get a very different experience, which is I, I'm ashamed to say I didn't get to see that, and by the time I'd seen it, I it couldn't be unseen. But being on Team Bureau is a different animal. Um, yes. that's, that's when you take, and these are the terms of service people. These are the people that swore the oath to their resumes. And a lot of times that loyalty is to the bureau. It's not to the, the constitution. I think the way that you and I probably look at it. So the, and once you start realizing you're on the outside, it's, it's a really awful feeling, obviously, um, kind of walk me through how that kind of, how that realization went down. Yeah. At this point, I'm not, I, I'm not, uh, I haven't made that leap yet. I'm still okay. a true believer. The process will work. Uh, right wins out all of the time. Um, so uh, meanwhile, uh, Justin is going through what Justin is going through. Um, they actually, uh, at the time, they were touting how we help our, our disabled military veterans and all mm -hmm. this obnoxious BS. Just to, so you know, when they took him out of training, they offered him uh, a janitor's job down at the academy. Uh, oh, you that's know, this thoughtful. Is, yeah, this is a guy with a college degree, former army ranger, uh, you know, veteran, d disabled vet. Uh, right, Com combat I, veteran. Yeah, and, and I would uh, I would argue that he's disabled because he could probably kick my ass at this point. Um, but, uh, not, you know, just disgusting in the treatment of, what they're doing to him. So right. he eventually makes his way back to Milwaukee while he is going through the EEO process. As you know, the EEO process is a complete farce, the equal employment opportunity. Um, that's where you file a discrimination complaint, uh, which is a complete waste of time, but it's a check in the box you got to go through in order to get to the process of getting into the courts. So 
Uh, I'm going to elaborate on that just one, just one little second too, because I'm actually, I just got my notice. This is kind of, well, is timely. Um, I filed an equal opportunity employment complaint on December 15th of last year that I was being discriminated against regarding COVID stuff. And we all knew at the time that uh, you could, everybody could get COVID, whether you were had the shots or not, it was irrelevant. And, uh, and I've also been a nationally registered paramedic for a decade. So I, I know a little bit about medicine enough to be dangerous. I, I went through the prequels to go to med school or go to PA school. So I'm not a complete dunce when it comes to what's going on with viral transmission or microbiology or anything along those lines. Um, and like every military member, you've probably done mop gear where they put you in all the containment suits. You got to put on the gas mask and see what it's like. And, and, you know, short of a rubber suit with duct tape around your sleeves, uh, you're not avoiding a biological threat that just doesn't happen. But apparently uh, underwear or a cloth diaper on your face will do it. So that was the thing. And if you decide not to get their, their experimental shots, then you're in this world where you have to uh, test for COVID every 72 hours. So I, I filed my complaint, blah, blah, blah. Um, I just got noticed this week that they are done with my complaint. It's a year later. Um, they're due to give it to me, I think on the, I think they have 360 days. So they had till like, you know, December 10th, but in pure retribution and Euro fashion, they're going to extend it 30 days to look for classified information in the file because they can unilaterally extend it for 30 days. And it's just, it's just to make it longer. All these things are called administrative remedies. And so Justin was going through what's called administrative remedies, which is all the BS that you do as a government employee um, until they let you get into the court system. Because if they put this in front of a jury, you know, Justin wins hands down uh, one hand or two hands both days. Uh, you know, it's just, it's super easy, but unfortunately that's the, the Bureau's technique is stretch it out. The process is the punishment. And obviously you're going to experience some of that as you continue, continue to tell us more of your story. I know that was part of it too. So yeah. So oh, yeah. EEO. All right. So he's doing the EEO thing. He's got that going on. He, he eventually, he comes back to Milwaukee for uh, a period of time. And then I, I believe if, if I remember correctly, um, he actually took a job in Quantico with HRT. Uh, he was okay. like a radio uh, communications, uh, you know, GS seven or eight or whatever it was, uh, in was he getting, was he getting paid HRT. in Milwaukee? Were they paying him yes. as a, as a GS 10 or whatever it was in, in Milwaukee? I don't know if it's a GS 10 or not. I, you'd have to ask him, I, but he was getting paid. He was still on the payroll. He was okay. not getting paid. I don't think he was getting paid as an agent at that point. Okay. <clears throat> he might've been a GS 10. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, but he goes back his, his process is uh, percolating through the system. Uh, he mm -hmm. eventually files a federal lawsuit in federal court. Um, there's a whole thing about that. They file it FBI head. They, they file in the district of Columbia because FBI headquarters tells them that they made the decision to remove him. Uh, then they go into court and argue that no, the decision was made in Quantico and you filed in the wrong place. Uh, so they re. Yeah, they refile in the Northern District of Virginia, uh, which is all, as we know, it's all a game to just extend the length of time that you're tied up in the legal battles. So yeah. uh, as his his case now is filed, uh, I come into the office one day, I get a call from the CDC, which is the chief division counsel. Uh, <clears throat> for those of you that aren't familiar with the Bureau, that's an FBI agent. Uh, that acts as legal counsel for the entire office, reviews affidavits or FISA warrants or Title Threes, uh, gives legal training to all the agents um, and works 100% of the time as an attorney inside the office. Uh, I get now, notified- when you were, were they all FBI agents when you were um, active? They were. 
Okay. Yes. And they're not now, just for your kind of awareness. We now have non-agent CDCs, um, which I feel like in a lot of ways defeats the purpose because having the same background and training as you and me with a badge and a gun and the authorities to arrest uh, brings a different level of scrutiny to the type of advice they're going to give because they've actually, in theory, gone out there and done the job um, and and would have been accountable to it. Now we get people that are kind of like these no factories and they don't understand because they've never worked the case the same way. So kind of interesting, uh, just another kind of change, kind of a quirk that's happened over the last maybe six, eight years. It's not as common, but they definitely are. My last CDC was a non-agent. Um, and not a good to, change. No, not a good change, I think. Okay. Uh, but but so I get called up to her office. Uh, she tells me, hey, you've been subpoenaed in this case. I'm like, subpoenaed? And at that point, I I'm a little uh, leery, suspicious, mm -hmm. uh, paranoid. <laughs> uh, yeah, nobody. So, I mean, nobody wants to get subpoenaed to a case that has nothing to do with your casework. Yeah. So we actually make a phone call back to the Office of General Counsel, OGC, which is an FBI, is another FBI attorney back at headquarters. And I asked them, hey, are these are when I testify, are these the opinions of Mark Kreider or are they the opinions of the FBI? What, what am I held to? What's my standard? And right. uh, they assured me, no, these are strictly your opinions. Uh, you don't speak for the FBI. You speak for Mark Kreider. I said, yep. OK, well, then I'm comfortable going back and doing that. And this was a civil and, matter, correct? This is a civil case. Correct. It's the first civil case. Uh, um, that I really have exposure to as an FBI agent. Okay. Uh, as you know, we work criminal cases. We don't right. spend a lot of time in, in civil court. Yeah. Um, on rare occasion, maybe a, a bureau vehicle accident or something like that will make it that way. But typically, we're not in civil court. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> um, I go back. I get sent the information. Uh, I make my travel arrangements. As I say, I'm still the cyber uh squad supervisor. I go up to let my ASAC know, the same ASAC that I've dealt with previously, right. uh, to let him know that I'm going to be out of the office for a week uh, and who's going to be sitting, who's going to be replacing me. Uh, he's actually not there. He's out on some training for two or three days. So I walk down to the SAC's office and I have found that this out. Uh, um, SACs, because they're SESs, uh, don't retain anonymity. So my SAC at the time was Teresa Carlson, infamous in the Bureau uh, as not the greatest person to deal with. Uh, no but I go down to Teresa Carlson's office. Uh, she happens to be outside her office uh, in the secretary's area. And I said, hey, I just want you to know I got subpoenaed. I'm going to be back at... Um, I'm back in Washington, D.C. for several days. So-and-so is going to be on the desk. All right. And, and, that, and that means you, you've named an acting supervisor for a short period of time while you're gone. That's standard bureau protocol. Yep. Uh, which should have been the end of the conversation. I yes. Turn around and leave. Agreed. Uh, she says, uh, well, what case? And I said, uh, I, I guess it's uh, Slaby v. Holder, because at that time, um, Holder yep. was the attorney general. And she said, Oh, well, come in my office for a minute. So then we walk from kind of the, the secretary area. We walk into her office. She closes the door. Uh, I sit in a chair across the desk from her desk. And she goes into a diatribe about Justin Slaby is a malcontent. Uh, he should be happy that he has an FBI job. Uh, this looks really bad for the Milwaukee office. He'll never be an agent. 
because he's only got one hand and he shouldn't be an agent. Um, and if I know what's good for me, because at the time I was trying to get a permanent supervisor job, I think, uh, if I know what's good for me, I'll come down on the side of the bureau. So, and this is a Quantico classmate of yours who obviously felt very comfortable. No, this speaking. is a different uh, SAC oh, diff at that point. Okay. Yeah. So that's, I think that's worth noting. So this is not someone that you had history or rapport with in the same way. No. no. Okay. And uh, and what was your, did you have a professional opinion of her before this sort of uh, interaction? Oh, yeah. And was it positive yeah. or not? No. No. <laughs> I, I assume as much, but it's, it's worth noting. So, yeah. uh, and, and her reputation, I imagine, was not very good in the office, even at that time. Her reputation, uh, in fact, uh, after my dealings, she filed a, an OPR or EEO in the fact that she'd been OPR'd so many times they were just after her. Noted. <laughs> so this is someone, and that, that what that says is that her employees were throwing complaints to our Internal Affairs Inspection Division and or and that they were making equal opportunity employment complaints against her because she was such a wonderful human and then she well, said it was discriminatory or retaliation on her well she point. said opr because her first uh she slept with her first supervisor which caused Standard. her and the supervisor to get opr see this is the uh, stuff we need this this is the this is the yeah. um and, and honestly and i don't mean that in a in a funny way there are so many strange scandals that happen when these people get to the SES level and the people that tend to be in those uh, positions, a lot of them have weird sexual scandals. I don't know why they promote immoral people, but obviously you saw it at that point in time as well. I've seen a lot of it. So I just flesh that out. Kind of yep. give me kind of the background of who this person is that's now bad mouthing an American, you know, a disabled yeah, American yeah. veteran. She'd been uh, she'd been. And I happen to know the supervisor that she slept with because she was in the Chicago office when that happened. Uh, he okay. was a good, he was a friend of mine. And, uh, you know, I, I, he acknowledges that he made a piss poor decision. Uh, okay. she ends up getting transferred back to headquarters, given a headquarters job. He gets OPR and gets time off. Uh, yeah. she then gets sent out to another office. I can't remember down South somewhere. Uh, was she, married? Up, she was not. Okay. He was, uh, yeah. she, she goes down there as a supervisor. She ends up sleeping with her ASAC. Uh, she comes back. She's in New York as an ASAC. Uh, she ends up having an affair with uh, the SAC, who then resigns. And then she is driving him around as a civilian in her bureau car, which, as you know, is a huge no-no. Uh, she actually gets OPR'd for that and lies about it and mm -hmm. is recommended for termination. Uh, and what I have been told is that Mueller uh, intervened because the guy that she was caught with in the car eventually becomes ADIC in New York. Uh, and so he, he and Mueller had a history together, but she is wow. not a, uh, she is, she is not a fine reputation of what an SAC should be held to. Yeah. Um, but it makes me so uncomfortable. Uh, I eventually, I stand up and I tell her, Hey, I, I'm Joe Friday, nothing but the facts, only the facts. Um, so first time in my bureau career that I did this, uh, um, I walk out of my office there. I walk into the CDC's office and I say, I think I've just been involved in a felony yep. um, witness tampering. And I am reporting it to you uh, because I believe then uh, she will report it up the chain. 
um, okay. you know, and, back and to headquarters. People, yeah. And so for people to understand when you're a federal whistleblower, which is what that moment was for you right there, you have a couple of different options. You can go through your chain of command. You can go through the legal chain, which is going to be the CDC. And theoretically, that goes to Office of General Counsel and is reported to to the, uh, you know, the Office of Inspector General or whatever route that they choose to go with it, inspection division or so on. But the specific criteria, because I've, I've brought this up a couple of times to people, is that you are reporting a violation of rule policy or federal law or gross uh, abuse of position, you know, whether it be fraud, waste or abuse of government resources. And in your case, you're talking about federal law witness tampering and that somebody has just tried to essentially suborn perjury from you. Right. And they are trying to they are trying to move your testimony into something that is favorable to the government's case. And this woman is not even a party to that case, as far as you know. Correct. She's literally doing bureau uh, bureau CYA at that point. Okay. Yeah. Now, any any reasonable FBI agent would assume that if you go and you report that there is somebody in the chain of command who is now violating federal law, all all the rank is going to close around you. The phalanx comes in to protect you because you have now done the right thing. You've you've upheld your oath. You've done the honorable thing and said that something is wrong, and you're not going to stand for it. Um, you did not experience that. I have not experienced that, but uh, I'm going to let you tell the, how that kind of story goes on. So you make that report. What's the first thing? What was the response to the CDC? Uh, she, she was kind of um, blasé about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So at, as soon as I'm done talking to her, I walk down to my desk and I think, um, I, I'm thinking this is going to go sideways on me. All right. So I need to do something. So I, I sit down. Um, I have an undercover laptop. It's a Mac, which, you, as you know, the Bureau hates Macintosh because they can't yes. control them. Um, right. And because I'm on the cyber squad, I, I, I have a, 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 a Macintosh laptop. So I sit down and basically craft a 302, which is a report of investigative findings. Uh, mm-hmm. It's as you've done many times uh, when you do an interview with a subject or a victim or or a complaint, um, I sat down and draft a 302 because I know at some point I'm going to be asked what what transpired. And it's not going to be any fresher than it is at that moment. So I sit down, I write it all out, I save it, and I leave it on my laptop. I don't do anything with it. Right. Um, and so an, an FD302 for the people that are, you know, some people have probably heard of these recently just because the FBI keeps showing itself in the press. <laughs> um, they're testimonial documents. This is the firsthand account of the agent who either, you know, uh, conducted an interview, who participated in an operation. And it is the testimony that you make that is admissible in court. You send it out there and it is the facts that, you know, it's not your feelings, although people put these weird like atmospherics and they'll describe the room sometimes and kind of there's some some very colorful 302s that have been uh, sent around the bureau and they're very narrative form. But generally speaking, they're very straightforward documents. There's not a lot of uh, editorializing and, and, and none if you can help it. Um, they're written in a very specific format. It's kind of third person, third party. You know, the writer believes this thing or the writer experienced this, blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, so there's a format to them. This is not just you sat down and wrote yourself a love note or a note. Um, there, there's a format to it. So you said save that on an undercover laptop. I assume that's going to be interesting in the future. <laughs> but uh, it, it's not on the bureau systems that are necessarily searchable on the regular bureau net networks. Correct. Okay. Um, so um, the following week, I had to... Uh, I, I had to DC and we're at an offsite, some law office. Um, 
I'm met by uh, uh, an assistant United States attorney and a uh, lawyer from the Office of General Counsel in the FBI. Um, mm-hmm. I meet with them. I, at this point, I'm still on Team America. Uh, as you know, you know, I think I'm still on the FBI side. Um, yep. And when I meet with them, I say, hey, you know, I'm familiar with, with criminal law at this point. Uh, I find out later that I don't think that they were completely forthright in what they told me. But I said, hey, just so you know, I think we need to disclose this happened to me. And I recount the events of uh, my interaction with the SAC about her trying to suborn my perjury. Okay. They tell me, hey, this is civil court. It's not criminal court. We don't have to disclose that. I'm going off their advice. We don't have to disclose that. But if it is brought up, just tell the truth. So I'm like, well, there's no doubt about that. If it gets brought up, I will tell the truth and I will disclose it. Um, now, that difference between that and doing something in the criminal court is that we know that if there's exculpatory information, we have to disclose it. We're compelled to do so. And they were leading you to believe that's not the case for civil. Have you found out that that's not the you don't have to? I, I don't I don't believe that's true. But some attorney on listening to your podcast can fact check us. But I don't believe that's accurate. Yeah, we've got some um, friends that will do that for us, I'm sure. So I, I proceed into this deposition uh, it, obviously it's not in front of a judge, but it's a deposition. <laughs> the rules are very different. If you've ever been deposed, they object back and forth, but you still answer questions and, uh, all this. Uh, so, uh, we go through the whole litany and I, and I got to say all the props as much as I, uh, uh, kind of, um, denigrate attorneys and don't like attorneys. Uh, I will say Justin's, uh, attorney team were fantastic. They did a great service to him and I think Good. a great service to the United States. Um, but anyway, Kathy Butler is his attorney at this point uh, at the deposition that I'm, that I'm at. Um, her last question is, uh, uh, Special Agent Kreider, in preparation for your testimony here today, did you discuss your testimony with anybody uh, inside or outside the FBI? And I said, Well, as a matter of fact, (laughs) I I laid out exactly what happened. Uh, As you can imagine, she went ballistic. And I I mean, right now we have a whole new deposition starting. Oh, yeah. And I mean, she's yelling at the OGC attorney, the the U.S. attorney. Uh, They immediately at the conclusion and and I walk her through everything that happened. She is just fit to be tied. They actually his his legal team. files a motion in the court. I get subpoenaed back two weeks later to come testify in a hearing before the magistrate, uh, as well as Teresa Carlson gets subpoenaed. So an interesting, uh, this is the tangled web and the, uh, the incestuous nature of the FBI. So the, the SAC previous to Teresa Carlson, who had called me on the carpet when I was back at Quantico, uh, with, with Justin, was Nancy McNamara. She was my classmate. Well, Nancy McNamara. Very familiar. What did she, what did she retire as? Well, Nancy McNamara at this time now is the head of inspections division and oversees OPR and inspections. Right. So uh, I get back there to testify and I go on and testify, you know, truthfully to, to the facts as I I recount them. Uh, Teresa Carlson gets on and complains that she didn't have enough time to prepare and takes the fifth amendment. 
And, and so does not have any testify. I found out later that she did that under advice from inspection division and OPR. Um, she ends up coming back two weeks later and, uh, and basically takes the fifth amendment and, uh, pleads the fifth and will not testify as to any of the events surrounding us, which then opens up an OIG investigation uh, office of, uh, inter, what is it? Office of inspector general. Inspector General uh, through DOJ opens that investigation into this whole thing. Uh, that takes forever to get done. Uh, they basically exonerate me. Uh, you can read that. It's still it should still be up on their website. Um, but they basically. What what uh, year without, was this specifically? Because we can probably pull uh, up the summary. They they put those executive summaries out. Yeah, it would have been 2013, 2014, I think. Uh, they will they not name give your name. me, uh, they will not, they, and they put my name in it, which is a disclosure that they shouldn't have done, uh, privacy yeah, act they never uh, do that. violation. Well, they did it in my case. And not only that, but they, to this day, they refuse to give me a unredacted copy of that report. Uh, they claim wow. that there is classified information in that report, uh, which is complete BS. Yeah, there's no chance. Have you? Um, what sort of legal process have you tried to to get it? Anything? Oh, I've I've filed. Uh, I, I've got a pending um, FOIA request from 2017 uh, to get an OPR investigation that I initiated before I left the bureau. Uh, I've fought and fought uh, legally uh, when I went through the EEO process and sued the FBI. Um, I I fought and fought. They're telling me that it's attorney client privileged information and national security information, which is of bullshit. Course. It's a personnel matter. Um, yes. But that, but that is the FBI's technique, right? They hide behind the shield yes. of classification over classification. You know, it happened in FBI space. So obviously it must've been classified because we all had a clearance. Um, it's, I find this kind of stuff really illuminating. It's none of it surprises me. I think it'll surprise people that are not part of the FBI that haven't lived through the kind of the intelligence community, um, morphing that happened after 9-11. I think that the people that were, you know, our predecessors that that worked in the 70s and the 80s and probably the early 90s didn't experience things the quite the same way. But the FBI has always hated the idea that you were going to pull back the curtain. Um, and I think you'll get a kick out of this. I jokingly referred to my job as being a secret agent for the FBI when I worked uh, counterintelligence in, in DC because everything that I wrote down had the word secret on it by the time I was done, even though they were a lot of times like my opinion, they were an interview that I took place in, you know, some guy's office. That was no big deal. It was a surveillance of me sitting and watching a trash truck come by and then, you know, doing a trash pull. None of these things are secret. They're all just stuff, you know, people can do all day long. Local cops do them on a regular basis. And yet somehow it was secret because I was an FBI agent. So I assume that means I was a secret agent for at least for a couple of years. Um, it's, it's a silliness that, uh, that you can only experience once you've been in that little role. And, and only if you have the sort of self-deprecating humor to know that what you're doing is oftentimes not nearly as serious as they would love to make it believe, but it is. Well, it is. as you know, in Sears school, they teach you, uh, you know, to take solace in the small victories as they come up. So That's right. uh, during the course of, of my lawsuit against the FBI, one of the first things that, you know, because I said I was getting blackballed from jobs. So in the FBI, when you put in for a promotion, you, you fill out. You, you know, there's got to be an, a federal form for it. Of course. So you you fill out an FD nine fifty four, and that is that is your background that you put in, and that's what goes before the promotion board. So my attorneys 
who ended up being Justin's attorneys in the long run uh, when it all was said and done. Um, my attorneys asked for all my 954s from the FBI and mm-hmm. uh, in the course of discovery. So uh, they called me up one day and they said, hey, uh, these 954s that you put in for these jobs, are they classified? And I said, no, they're um, unclassified. In fact, on the system, it expressly says, do not put any classified yep. information uh, in this document. Right. And so they said, well, we're going to send you uh, what they sent us. And basically my 954s were probably 12 to 14 pages long. And they were basically, uh, my name, my office of origin, the date and everything else was redacted. Because being a SWAT member and being a, uh, yeah, being a master police instructor, these are all very classified ideas. That's why they're on your sheriff's department website. (laughs) So I, uh, I, I, I sat around and stewed about it and, um, that system is so onerous. I don't know if you've ever worked in it, but it's so onerous that typically what people do is they craft their responses in a word document and then cut and paste it because uh, you'll get kicked out of it if you try and type into it and uh, it, was the this, whole thing uh, will crash. Was this on it's the Merit on the, Service Board or were you doing, where were you putting this? No, this is on the uh, FBI red s- side. Got it. Yeah. So notoriously unstable, terribly yep. developed software, that kind of thing. So, so, yep. I told them, I said, Hey, I have all these on my personal laptop because I type them up at home. Uh, right. supposed to be unclassified. I said, I'll send mm-hmm. them to you. They said, no, no, don't send them to us. You'll get a security violation. Uh, they'll play that game. So I yep. stewed about it for about a day and a half. And then I was searching around on the FBI's, uh, inter in, in intranet. Intranet. There you go. Sorry. Yeah, and no problem. I, I found out that uh, the FBI actually has an office of classification. Yes. So originally I was going to pick up the phone and scream at this guy and, um, you know, go after him. And then I thought, no, no, no. If I do that, he can deny that we ever had a conversation. So I get on the system and I look up and all those 954s are saved on the FBI system. I look sure. up right on the top banner. It says, unclassified. I look at my 954s that they've requested. They're all listed as unclassified. So I I type up an email to him and I said, hey, I need you to review these. They're on this location in the uh, intranet. Uh, Please review them and find out if there's any classified information in them. Uh, I've been told I'm involved in a lawsuit. I've been told uh, by FBI that they are classified secret and they've redacted them so my attorneys can't see them. Uh, If they are indeed classified, I need to make a disclosure that they've all been mishandled at every career board that they've been in because they've been handled as unclassified information. Uh, Well played. Two days later, two days later, my attorneys had all my 954s completely unredacted. And, And this is what happens when, because the FBI loves to go after people who are actually working in the job, and it's usually people who have no experience in either, um, we'll call it a basic ruse, right? Or in any kind of uh, investigative operation. And so this kind of stuff is pretty standard. I, I had a similar experience. I, I taped the, uh, the, I did a one-party consent uh, tape from the woman that I called at headquarters, who I literally called to ask a simple question. Hey, did you get my email? And she launched into a um, counseling session, we'll say it nicely, <laughs> which was ill-advised because I recorded all 68 minutes of it. And it included 40 minutes of me kind of beating her about the face with how bad the FBI is. 
But we also got her on tape saying all the stupid things that they say, which is that you got to trust the process. And, you know, I've been here for so long and all those things. It's like, well, if you've been there so long, how come it's not better? Because you're part of it. That's how that's how that works. But when you use investigative tools that you and I would use on any kind of investigation, um, the FBI is woefully unprepared to handle that because a lot of the people at the top are incompetent. And they're using these really basic tools that can easily be sidestepped, like knowing that if it is, in fact, classified, every single one of your interview promotion boards were all you know, now spill or leak, take your pick. And they're all security violations for everybody involved, which is, that's hilarious. I love it. It's brilliant. It's simple. And, uh, and of course they fall victim to that kind of stuff because they're not necessarily that competent. They're just bullies. Uh, and I think that's kind of what you continue to experience as that went on. And it's, it's a common technique, uh, to delay, obfuscate, um, protract because they know they have attorneys that are on the payroll and you're yeah. paying your attorneys an hourly fee and they're going to spend you into oblivion. Correct. And that's how yeah. they that's how they make this go away. Right. It's not through the truth and it's not through honesty and it's not through integrity. It's because their process can outlast your your ability to withstand the process. Yeah. 100%. Okay, so now you've got all your 954s unclassified from the previously misclassification. <laughs> and then uh so where did where did this lead? And obviously so- so yeah, obviously uh, Slavey's the, still in, in limbo. Is he working at Quantico at this point, you think? Uh, so we have, uh, we do uh, the two hearings uh, for the jury, you know, the witness tampering thing. Um, and about two or three weeks later, I, I'm not sure how long later, uh, Justin's trial actually starts. Um, and so I get subpoenaed once again to go back and testify. <clears throat> One of the greatest moments uh, of my life so in preparation, uh, I, I left this out, in preparation for uh, my testimony about the um, you know, attempt to suborn perjury, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office calls me. And at this point, I'm, I'm still thinking, you know, hey, the FBI is going to do the right thing, blah, blah, blah. Um, they asked me, hey, we'd like to do a little trial prep with you, which if you've worked a criminal case is not unusual. Typically, you and the U.S. Attorney sit down, maybe... Uh, they have a second U.S. attorney, highly unusual to have a second U.S. attorney. But you sit down with the U.S. attorney, you go through your testimony, you go through your 302s, any evidence that you take took in. So I'm thinking, OK, yeah, that's normal. Well, I get in on, uh, you know, uh, shit, I can't remember the system that the FBI uses, but it's basically WebEx, Zoom, whatever uh, it, it was oh, called. Yeah, Skype, point. Skype link. They've changed the name a few times, but that's OK. Yeah. Um, it was like VTAC or something or because it was this secret, a, the secret oh, level. This, but it, yeah, but this is a virtual conference for you. Yep. And <laughs> so I, I walk into the room and it's me and I look and there's like seven U.S. attorneys in this room. Oh, no. It, it, and I, I kid you not, at the end of that session, my last question to them was, am I a witness or a subject? Yes. Because that's that was the feeling I got out of that. And I think that was really the turning point that I said, okay. Did they answer you out of curiosity? Did they give you an answer? Oh, they're like, oh, no, no. We're just, you know, we're just attempting to get to the the bottom of all this. Yeah, all seven of us. Yeah. And so. I'm uh, going to stop you for one second because I can imagine you going into a room with seven U.S. attorneys, which is not a good thing. And you were in the Navy. I had a buddy who was a a senior (laughs) master chief or he was a. Yeah, he was a senior chief diver. And he tells me, uh, you never want to get called to the big table without a cup of coffee. And I never really understood what that meant. So I had to kind of 
piece it out of him. And essentially, if you get called to the big table and you didn't know you were going to be there enough to have a cup of coffee with you at the time, you're the guy getting crushed. And, that, uh, we, and that, we used to say, you don't want to be at the chair with no ashtray. Okay. So same idea. <laughs> I, these, I love these Navy analogies. They're really special to me because I, I never spent time on shifts like that, but I, I get the effect. Like you, you knew immediately that you're at the wrong end of the table when you're I'm screwed. walking in. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay. And that's a terrible feeling. So, uh, you know, we go through uh, those two hearings. Uh, basically, Teresa Carlson refuses to tell, say anything, let alone tell the truth. Um, right. We we proceed then to the to the uh, to the trial phase of this, and by this time, I'm represented by a FLEO attorney. I know that I'm screwed. Um, I know that things are are going bad for me because I'm getting one thing after another. So and I. I'm going to, so people know like FLIOA is the federal law enforcement, uh, federal law enforcement officers association. And it is our version, the closest thing we have to a union, like the local police departments can have a union state can have a union federal 1811s criminal investigators do not get a union, but what they do get is we have the ability to contribute monthly to this like sort of mutual aid society that will, you know, co-sponsor, um, retained attorneys. So you've got now essentially like a union type rep attorney. Um, who theoretically knows about disciplinary actions and is going to have your best interests at heart. Yes. Um, and, and so prior to uh, prior to the trial, I'm getting calls from the U.S. Attorney's Office, Northern District of Virginia, uh, wanting to do a little bit of trial prep and stuff with me. Uh, right. I reach out to my my FLEOA attorney and ask him, you know, what are what are my obligations at this point? And he says, you don't have to talk to him at all. And uh, so I'm like, OK, great. And um, the 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 AUSA that was the lead in the case, and I would love to sit down and have a beer with him today and really talk about it because I, I think he'd be great. I would love to do a podcast with me and him on with you mediating because he yeah. was a former Army JAG officer and okay. his father was a retired two or three star. And um, I really don't think that his heart was in this. I think he was being directed. And shortly after this trial, he actually left the U.S. Attorney's Office, went into private practice. Okay. That being said, he still played on that side of the uh, uh, of that side of the line. And so uh, he finally does get through to me one day, and I per pretty much go off on him in true Master Chief uh, form, and pretty much yes. uh, drop the f bomb about twenty seven times out of thirty words. And tell yep. him where he can stick his trial prep, and uh, it was it was the most cathartic thing telling off a, a United States attorney to, that because uh, we don't we don't get to do that. that time. Yeah, we never get no. to do that. That's never going to happen. If you want your cases prosecuted, you uh, that's it. You kowtow to them and and do whatever you can to cultivate a good relationship with them. Uh, right. But we end up going to the case. Uh, there was some interesting stuff in the case that uh, is just amazing. You know, the whole thing stemmed on his inability to function the weapon uh, in a safe and efficient manner. That's what it came down to. The guys That's what the Bureau was trying to you. pin it to. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that they did is instead of making a, a performance issue, they made it a medical issue. And what right. that did uh, strategically 
is if it had been a performance issue, it would have gone to the Office of Personnel Management, which means it would have been outside the FBI's control at that point. Yes. But because they made it a medical issue, which, as Justin told me, I'm not a fucking starfish. I'm not going to grow back a hand. Uh, <laughs> that kept it in-house and they could control it. So I think yes. they did that on purpose because OPM would have told them, you're, you're in the wrong here. He needs to yes. be back in training. Uh, yes. So this whole thing stems, uh, you know, he's got three beautiful little uh, blonde haired kids at the time sitting in the front row, his beautiful wife. Uh, and they call him up to the stand and they go through his testimony. And so the last thing they ask him is, can, can you fire the weapon with your prosthetic? Can you do the reloads and blah, blah, blah. And we there was this whole production about getting a red handle into the courtroom with the with the marshals and everything. Sure. And by this time, the marshals are rooting for him. Initially, they were very pissy. But by the end of the trial, they are 100 percent converted. And uh, of course, he they get up and they said, Your Honor, we'd like to give, you know, Mr. Slaby a red handle and have him demonstrate all the things that they say he can't do. And the government objects. Well, of so course, whole, that ruins our whole, case. What's your objection? It ruins my yeah. case. The whole crux of their case and they're objecting, uh, we ended up, they end up having a sidebar. Uh, and then when, uh, they, they wouldn't, the judge didn't allow it, uh, wow. for some technical reason. But then when the U S attorney cross-examined Justin, he opened that door. And so they brought it back up and the judge said, Hey, U.S. attorney opened the door. Yes, you can demonstrate it. So he gets up in front of the whole group and runs through and manipulates the gun, trigger on the gun. It, it was it was kind of hilarious. That's um, wonderful. And I, I think the jury deliberated for about two hours. And the only question that they sent to the judge during deliberations is, was how much money can we give him? Yes. So we had a good feeling that it was going to uh, be a positive outcome for Justin yes. at that point. Indeed. And what did they come back with? Um, there, there's um, what most people don't understand is there are very strict limits on what they are allowed to give him. So they gave him a bunch of back pay. They promoted him up because now he'd been on a training. So he should be a GS 12 at this point, you yep. know, w with the way the structure is. So they they brought him back up to his level, gave him back pay for all that and AVP. Uh, because he was obviously wasn't getting the overtime. And then yep. um, they I think they gave him seventy four, seventy five thousand dollars in damages, which isn't much, uh, no. which is more than he didn't want any. He wanted back in training. He said, hey, let me fail or pass on my own. That's all I ask. Right. And then they reinstituted him into training. And so yeah. they and put him in a class. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's that's too honorable position. But that's the kind of people that you and I expected to work with people that just say, let, you know, I'm not looking for, I'm not trying to prove the point here. I'm just trying to do the job that I, uh, that I accepted. Um, and it wouldn't be nice if the government actually did their, their due, uh, you know, what they were, what they, their end of the contract as well, which obviously doesn't always happen. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty remarkable. And it it's the, the, I think the most remarkable thing is not that, that he won and not, it, it's more that the government would fight it 
tooth and nail as long as possible. And what people may not realize is that when you join the FBI, you become a GS 10-1. And then the next year, you're a 10-2. And then the next year, you're an 11-3. And then the year after that, you're a 12-1. So if they promoted him to a GS 12, we're talking three, four years of just absolute nonsense that they dragged him through when they knew that they were wrong in the first place. And moreover, that they had a senior executive who not only suborned perjury, but was probably very aware of it and was advised. So that's why she's taking the fifth, you know, she's trying to avoid, uh, you know, self-incriminating in this case, which obviously I'm wondering, did this, this laptop that you had come back into play at all? Did the, uh, the FD 302 that you had been? No, they, they, uh, they tried to, um, they, they tried to finagle the metadata. Uh, fortunately I was on a squad of cyber agents. Uh, Turns out. Yeah. So, um, it's like, yeah, that's not going to fly. I, everything's been solid. Uh, I will tell you, Teresa Carlson, uh, the OIG came out. OIG can't make punitive recommendations. They can only refer their findings to OPR. OPR right. then uh, did a uh, OPR investigation on Teresa Carlson based on the OIG findings. Um, and I know because I had a good friend in, that was in OPR at the time. Uh, it, as you know, in the FBI, you have to have at least 20 years of service and be 50 years of age before you can retire with full benefits. Uh, Carlson yeah. at the time was 49. Um, and so OPR sat on her yep. punishment. They were gonna recommend her for termination. They sat on it until she turned 50. Then they uh, recommended her for termination. And you have 10 days to respond uh, in that case, in which case she said, I'm gonna retire. So she retired with full benefits because and that, they were yep. afraid to do their job. And that, and that is the case, I think, uh, more often than not. We see a lot of these people that have done egregious things, whether it was standing up for for sexual uh, abuse or, or misconduct or whether it's because they uh, they you know abused their authority. And we see these senior executives walk out with their pension intact with their uh, and, and they're never named for the thing that they were we, they were adjudicated to have done. The standard is is obviously the civil burden. It's the preponderance of the evidence. But when they um when opr knows that you did something they had all the records to prove it and it would have held it, up in court i'm sure it, and i'm sure you remember uh when you went through quantico is they would not give extra attention to any one person all your training had to be done as a class because they didn't want to there's no favoritism or anything like that one of they the got rid of that, that by the way they, they got no problem doing favoritism now oh do they they do uh, so they do legitimate remedial training for people mm-hmm so one of the things that they they would do to Justin is they would bring him in with like three instructors after hours and make him perform things that were coming up in training. He hadn't been trained on, but they would. And then they were using those as a basis to disqualify him to continue in training. That's gross. Uh, I, just the, the things that they did were so egregious and not one person out of that entire case other than myself. <laughs> received any disciplinary action you right. know out of the whole thing um i want to i want to address that because that's one of the things that i've also beat home on um you went to the holocaust museum as part of your training or was that not we did uh, not. initiated all right um you're familiar with kind of the the story that i've told about how we go there and, and the purpose is so that you know that you're not going to be complicit in following orders that you know are illegal immoral or unethical and interestingly enough, the only way that this case proceeds as well, and this is kind of an interesting tie into the way that I look at the world now, but um, the only way that this case proceeds is that people agreed three three instructors would have had to show up. 
and do a thing that was outside of protocol and be abnormal in order to further this sort of case against the guy to get rid of him. Um, you have any thoughts about how, you know, what would have gone on in their decision making? Is is that something if they had asked you to do, I don't think you would have done it uh, that way. So, so kind of as a follow on this, uh, a second OIG investigation, uh, because I made allegations that I was blackballed from being promoted and stuff. Um, sure. They did a second OIG investigation. And during the course of that investigation, um, one of the first jobs that I put in for um, once this all started was uh, as uh, as head of the violent crime squad in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And come to find out, one of the people that were on that career board discloses that, hey, when we did that career board, we voted Mark number one. Whoa. And the ASAC turned off the tape and said, he will not be number one. And I came out number four in the official, uh, in the official findings. And I filed an OPR on that case and nothing happened. Nobody would. And I kind of, I'm with you in that, you know, the F in the public scope, it's been said that it's the upper echelon of FBI management. Well, as you know, on a career board, there are three field supervisors, an ASAC, and depending on the three supervisors, there also may be a minority observer on that case. So Mm -hmm. that's five people that were involved in a cover-up at the basic supervisor level for that particular career board. And I'm sure that that happened on every single career board that I was on post-Justin. So I have no um, doubt. I, I take some offense to the fact that it's just FBI management, but I can tell you, I, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I had people that I, I very, very, very much respected uh, that were mentors of mine when I came into the FBI that had retired when this was all going on and also current members of the FBI. And they said, Mark, I would never do what you did just because I know that the FBI will go after me. Yes. And so what what kind of chilling effect does that have on the system if you treat the people that bring problems forward and you and you quash them for bringing those those problems to light? Um, and, and I think that's a huge problem within the FBI is that we have this culture of don't upset the family. It's it's very mafia like. It's funny. Uh, and I just got goosebumps thinking about all the kind of times when people tell you those things. It's like, uh, I think, I think Phil told me this. He said, there's a, you know, there was a book that was written by a retired agent. Um, and it's called, you know, the FBI, they eat their young. And it was one of the first things that was, that was, uh, revealed to me when I was a, even a probationary agent, you know, I was only on probation for six months when I got out of the Academy. Cause I was a, a vet and I, I imagine you had the same thing. Um, no, they didn't have that in place at the time. So kind of funny when I went through the FBI, uh, you had to resign your commission and you were not allowed to drill, uh, which I think is a pure violation of federal law. It um, is. Yeah. There's no doubt. And I mean, nobody and, or ever, maybe it's been corrected now, but. And nobody ever told us that, uh, um, oh yeah, veterans only have to be on probation for six months, not a year. So the probation is one year and that may have been codified later. It's in the, in the code of federal regulations. I had a boss that tried to tell me, she was like, you're still on probation. And I was like, no, I'm not. I mean, I'm still a new guy. I got it. I'm FNG, no big deal. Um, and I'm not trying to claim that I'm something that I'm not, but legally speaking, probation is a status and it goes away after a year. If you're a military veteran, it's not negotiable. It's, it's literally built into the federal regulations. So we're not negotiating here. And I'd print it off and leave it on her desk every once in a while because she was an idiot. Um, and she's a section chief now. So that's how that works. She's probably going to be in a, an assistant director shortly. 
hopefully and I'll get to see her name somewhere in a press release but uh fully incompetent you know used to tell me she had the best cases in the bureau and she was a, a field agent for less than she was a field agent and she was at headquarters at three years so you tell me how great her cases might have been in the two and a half years she was in Oklahoma City I know and you know that that's garbage but it didn't stop her from saying garbage and it's like I'm a grown-ass man you're trying to tell me things that are false I've been alive for long enough to know that you're, what you're saying is nonsense. And then she would always tell me, you know, oh, we're the same. We're just the same. And I was like, you're an unmarried 36-year-old woman. And I'm a, you know, a married father. Like, no, we're not. I was in the military and you only have ever worked for the FBI. But those are the people we promote. A lot of them are willing to go along with illegal, immoral, unethical decisions. And I think it's so telling that even your colleagues who, like you said, people you deeply respected would not go do the same thing you did. I think that's been the same uh, information I've gotten. And moreover, um, people who are actively working inside the FBI will tell you things that you were shocked to hear come out of their mouth. So for example, my supervisor stated to me, he knew what they were doing was wrong regarding the COVID testing, that it was wrong for them not to let me come into the office, but that he had alimony and child, you know, white, you know, he had to support his ex-wife. He was divorced. He had a mortgage. And so those were the things that made the decision that he was going to do what he said. And, and I honestly, at the beginning, I, I was kind of like, man, I get it. I, I don't want you to do that for me either, per se. I'm not asking you to jump out on a cross with me. What I would ask you to do is stay out of this as best you can so that when I go to go to court, I don't have to name you because I think he's a nice man. Uh, and then what that all changed for me when I came back in the office, I found out he was distributing body cam footage of me, which was totally bizarre and didn't make any sense. He was showing people like our secretary, our OST was, you know, getting to view it. It's like, what investigative purpose does she have looking at body cam footage of me? And then, um, he sat me down in his office and said, and you know, you can't forget these kind of things. He said, um, you've been removed from my squad and I'm glad you're gone because you've been an effing burden on me. You know, and you've you've doubled the workload that I had, and I didn't sign up for that. It's like, okay, one, yes, you did. You signed up to be an FBI supervisor, whatever the work is. That's what you signed up for. If it's more, it's more. And moreover, man, shame on you, because just a little bit ago, you were telling me that you were on my side and you understood. But they get converted, yeah. um, and and obviously you saw the same thing. And the fact that they had people go along, you know, essentially the field supervisors when you were interviewing for jobs were your. Um, they were your your colleagues at the same pay grade. I agree, right? And and they all is that right? You were doing fourteen, and you were applying for another fourteen job. No, I was a thir- I, I stepped off the desk and applied. Got it. Oh, okay, so you've gone for but you're a previous fourteen, and you're now applying yeah. for other fourteen gigs. And so these are people that are at the same kind of uh, professional level. They've got the same career development. They've they've sat in the same board, and they know what it takes, and they know that you've already done it. And uh, yep. they're voting down, even though you're the best. And they voted, and they changed their votes, which tells me there's just a. Uh, a tremendous lack of moral courage when it comes to doing the right thing. Like, there's no reason you could get me to change my vote if I did that. Like, I know that you're probably in the same boat there. Um, there was an article written recently about uh, by my former supervisor. I think this is of note. We'll kind of wrap here on this because I think it's the last kind of piece. Um, his initial reception was very negative that when I came out and and did what I did and, and went on Ben Bongino's podcast, you know, right when you reached out to me, I was seeing that he wrote a piece for Town Hall that said that uh, my new friend, Stephen Friend, is the FBI whistleblower that the, you know, the, the people of the Bureau deserve, that he's honorable, he's courageous, he's righteous, he's doing the right thing in the right way. And Steve has been disillusioned by the FBI very, very quickly. And the fact that nobody came to his aid, nobody stood up and said the right thing the way that we would expect them to do. They did exactly what those people did on that career board. Um, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to people. Um, I've had a lot more time in it. I'm, 
I, I sort of made peace that this was going to be the case. I'm a little bit older than Steve and maybe I'm just, a, I don't know, maybe I just don't expect that much out of people. I'm kind of a pessimist in some ways. Um, the second piece that came out was written by the same guy. And he, he said the good men and women of the FBI, uh, you know, now should turn away from Steve friend because he's, he's a radical and he's made friends with me and I'm a bitter malcontent and so on and so forth. And so Steve, you know, so the 180 on Steve, because Steve didn't continue to toe the party line that the FBI is wonderful and there's only a few bad apples and we can we can fix it immediately. Where do you sit on the quote unquote good men and women of the FBI um, based on your experiences like that? And um, and where does the bureau need to go? Because I think that's the last kind of real question. I'll let you just kind of free form on it. I, I think that's the sixty four thousand dollar question, because the, mm -hmm. obviously the uh, the um, promotion process is is flawed. Sure. Um, uh, the kind of people I can tell you that in in my last 10 years in the Milwaukee office, I can't name an SAC or an ASAC that brought his family to Milwaukee or and or bought a house in Milwaukee. Mm. Um, most of them lived in an apartment. They were geographical bachelors. Um, and so they have no investment in the community. Sure. And I, I can tell you, I got in trouble a couple of times because the chief of police would come to me and asked me for a favor instead of going to the front office because he knew knew me from when he was a lieutenant and I was a new agent in right. Milwaukee. And so we had a history and, and we worked together. Uh, so I, I think there's something fundamentally flawed in a promotion process that would want the kind of people that would leave and abandon their family in order to get more power and prestige. Uh, yes. So I think that number one is we need to take a good, hard look at the promotion process. Um, number two, uh, when Louis came in, one of his first things that he did was walk through headquarters and basically fire every other person um, and yeah. get them back out to the field. Uh, the FBI is designed to be a regional thing. And and SAC should be allowed the latitude, uh, I'm sure you saw this, is headquarters would put out a mandate that you need to work, you know, 15% this, 12% this, 18% this. Well, you know, that that doesn't fit. Milwaukee doesn't have the same problems that Philadelphia has. Philadelphia doesn't have the same problems that Miami has. Miami doesn't have the same problems that Sacramento has. So mm -hmm. you need to you need to promote the right people and give them the ability to adapt their office to what the actual needs are. If, if I don't have any traffic uh, complaints in my county, I don't put 80% of my deputies on traffic control. I put them on drug investigations because I've got 14 overdose deaths this year. That's where my problems are. So right. I, I, I flex and adapt to that. And so I, I saw that uh, post 9-11 really, really rear its ugly head where we pared down all of our criminal stuff in order to inflate all this, all this uh, IT nonsense when we were, we were actually handling it pretty well prior to 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, we just didn't communicate. And one of the big problems was communication between the field and between headquarters. And since 9-11, I'm sure we've probably tripled the size of headquarters. And as you know, nothing good in any organization, whether it be Army, Air Force, Navy, um, IRS, FBI, DEA, nothing good comes from headquarters. No, headquarters I call it the Death Star. There. 
<laughs> yeah, it, they should be. It's a black hole. It's not it even is. a Death Star. It's a black hole. And really, they should be there to support and make sure that I have the tools in the field to do my job. And if if I was director for a day, I would walk through and every, you know, two out of three piece people would be, hey, pack your crap. You're going to the field and you're yes. going to go do investigations. And we we pare down that headquarters. And then this whole modeling of of uh, what Mueller did in trying to model us after the CIA. I don't know how much exposure you've had to working with the CIA, but the CIA yep. is paid for their opinion, their expertise, uh, you know, their conjecture. Where is this leading? We are not paid for that. We are paid for facts. My yes. Whatever I put on paper has to hold up to the scrutiny of the court. And a judge has to be able to look at that and say, you know, Special Agent Kreider, is this factual? Yes. It's not a feeling I got when I sat down and talked to Kyle. It's what Kyle told me. And, and I think there's a big... Uh, difference. And culturally, there should be a difference because yes. that's what they're an intelligence organization. And while we do intelligence, we should, everything that we do should be able to stand up to the scrutiny of the court system. And I think that Mueller brought in so many people and tried to model us more after the uh, CIA that it really, really hampered us. Um, and, yes. and I know you and I talked uh uh, a little bit about this. And uh, I was talking to another mutual friend of ours that um, I have always been of the opinion that new agents should never be assigned to national security matters. If you look historically, national security matters are the most sensitive investigations that we do and require the highest level of, uh, they require a top secret uh, uh, TSSCI clearance, you know, special yeah. compartmentalized information. So why are, excuse me, why are we taking agents that are unvetted and on probation yes. and putting them in, into our most sensitive investigations? I think it's a disservice to them and it's a disservice to the organization. And it leads to people like Robert Hansen that were put in those positions early on in their career and then dug in and then started selling secrets. Um, yes. And I think we need to vet our employees and you should not get a TSCI clearance until you've had at least five years in the organization. And, and I think and there's really a, there's no reason for it in, in criminal work. I mean, people can lose their their SCI, their security, um, secured compartment information access because it's un, it's unnecessary. I read out on purpose because there was no use for it in the work that I was doing. It should be a on a need to know basis and on an as needed basis based on the job. I 100 percent agree with that. Otherwise, you end up with people like me doing CI investigations directly out of the academy, which I appropriately, I think, coined the term, it's federal law enforcement cosplay at that point. We're pretenders because I, <laughs> I, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know. And, and I'm a pretty quick learner. People will, will know my, you know, I, I'm a savvy individual. People who know me well know that um, if it takes most people two years, it usually takes me a couple couple months. And I looked around and I was like, the emperor has no clothes. What we're doing here is a joke. It's not It's not making any sense because the people who are doing it are not serious people. And that's not to say there's not real national security work that can be done, but not in the volume that we did, not in d literally dozens of squads in, in Washington field. And you can laugh about this, but my responsibility on the atomized uh, sort of topic list that my squad did was Chinese FCI that was non-criminal because the minute it went criminal, we had to give it away. It was non-embassy based. 
It was non-defense uh, attache, which is the DAO. So none of that. And it was non, uh, non-US, non so OCONUS only. So I had um, intelligence officers. Uh, you know, I had one or two cases that were on intelligence officers and some co-optees. Um, I had people that were not based in the United States that did not pursue classified information. This was collectors of unprotected information was what my casework was on. Who cares? That's CIA stuff. That's awareness of overseas techniques. And and, and it has nothing to do with there's never going to be a criminal prosecution. And it doesn't yep. add to the to the mission that the FBI has, in my opinion. So when I asked, what is the purpose of the information? They said, well, then we'll know more. And it's like, okay. And then what? And we're like, well, then we can use it to get more information. And it's a never ending, you know, I hate to say it, but it's a never ending circle jerk of, of gaining information for the purpose of information. It's, it's self-lubricating. It's the self-licking ice cream cone. It's, it's absurd. And it's absurd for someone who's a criminal investigator who carries a gun. Why? Um, and it, it sounds like that may not have always been the case. It certainly is the case now. It's really unfortunate. Um, any, yeah, any final thoughts you want to add on here that anything we didn't cover that you wanted to hit? And, and then I'm going to try to wrap it up because I think we've done, I think we've done a, a service to at least the people that are listening here to, to understand sort of your take. Yeah. And, and in Justin's case, I think, uh, you know, this, it, this was a, a long session, but, uh, um, it really is, there are some absurdities and we probably scratched about 5% of what went on in that case. And it's yes. just, um, it, it's a playbook. You talk about the clearance. One of the things that I did when I was going through all this is I was working on a JTTF, um, but I asked my supervisor, I said, Hey, do I need SCI clearance to do my job? And he said, no. And I said, okay, well then I want it taken away because as you know, with SCI, you're required to take a polygraph annually. And I had watched them is, as is in your case and in um, uh, Steve's case is what is one of the best tools for retaliation is you fail a polygraph and now I revoke your security clearance and you can't do your job. So you're suspended without pay. And right. um, I've seen that tactic used over and over and over again. And I'm like, I'm not gonna fall prey to it. So. Um, and I explained that all to my supervisor. He understood it. Uh, we had known each other for a long time in our bureau careers. And so he was very supportive of me and he's like, all right, I'll get it taken off and, uh, you're not going to have a polygraph. So, um, the playbook that they use, I'm sure that if we got eight whistleblowers together in, in a room, we could sit down and come up with all the techniques that they use in their retaliation playbook. And it's, yes. it's, it's disgusting. Yeah. People aren't seeing it, but Phil is also nodding and knows the same, the same treatment. Uh, I've gotten eight whistleblowers together and gotten that. That is in fact, the playbook. There's no doubt about it. And you're hundred percent correct. So, um, so what it, else is funny it's tragic. is, is uh, I don't know if you've gotten a copy of Rosemary Dew's book, which I'm one of the chapters in Rosemary's book that she uh, got together a bunch of uh, whistleblowers, but I tell also people, reached... tell people the title of it. Uh, uh, oh God, FBI, it's called FBI whistleblowers, something, something, something. It's written by Rosemary Dew, who okay. is a former FBI agent. She actually quit after like 14, 15 years because of what she endured as well. Okay. Um, but I reached out to those, the people that are in her book, I reached out to all of them. And it's very funny that, uh, the contemporaries in time frame, a lot of the same players, names came up over and over again. The Ter Ter Teresa Carlson's, the Na Nancy McNamara's. Uh, it's kind of 
it's kind of scary how how often those names come up in in com- people that were completely divergent and had no contact with each other. No, and these people now there's a new generation and obviously there's a new a wash through and they and they they upgrade those positions. But at this point, it's it's Jennifer Moore, it's Larissa Knapp. There's a couple of other players that are in the same boat. Um, I had people. I, I released that phone call of uh, my call with inspection division and people recognize her voice. Um, I had a journalist reach out to me from uh, American greatness who said, you know, is that Marilyn Melky? He sent it to me on, on, on Twitter, like publicly. And, um, and, you know, for the, for the, the sake of uh, our, she's a GS 14, so it is what it is, but you know, she's also done videos with the FBI of showing her face and her name. And so she's, she's, made herself public. I'm not worried about exposing her name. But what's funny is that she has a very recognizable delivery and people know her. And I had a friend call like who didn't know that. And he heard her voice on the call and goes, Hey, is that Marilyn? Yeah. My daughter worked for her for two years. And by the way, she helped cover up sexual scandals that were going on with George Pirro, who was the SAC of Miami and, and famously did the, uh, you know, the questionable Saddam Hussein, you know, he's famous in the bureau for the Saddam Hussein interview. I've been told by people in the agency that He's not the guy that that he presents himself it's in the bureau. It's what you can brief and it's what you wrote down. Right. So he did it well and made a career out of it. Um, but he also, you know, was banging a support employee who was married to another agent in in a bureau car in, in the parking garage and potentially wrecked a car while getting, you know, fellatio. So not not my I favorite. I think that's guy a the trifecta. World. Uh, that's the classic bureau, uh, yeah, corruption that, and then retired of course, with his pension in check and nobody ever heard about it. So, you know, we'll, we'll get more of these stories. We'll get some of the Miami people to talk about these things. The sad thing is, is that we have to expose it. And luckily right now I've, I've just been blessed with the, the right connections at the right moment to be able to do some of these things. There's just not enough information about stories like yours, which are the, the rule. They are not an exception when it comes to calling out the wrongdoing of the FBI. And, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for hearing these. There's details here that we got into today that we did not get previously. So very interesting for me. I hope it's interesting for our listeners. Um, and like I said, thank you for carving out two hours of your day to, to sit and talk to us. I think we'll probably release this as a one thing and people can listen through it. Um, don't be surprised if you get some interview calls, because I think the story that you have is compelling. And, um, you know, I think the people of Walla Walla County are really lucky to have you. You're a, you're a patriot and a great American. Just, just sitting on the outside, I think your story is incredibly reasonable and credible. And it's what people expect from the FBI. So thanks for being that guy. Just just two quick follow-ups uh, and super oh. thankful for you having me on. One, I watched your video of your interaction with the deputy sheriff. And uh, as a guy that's been out on patrol and watching a deputy call 10-8 no report and finding the bureau that has a severe issue with that interaction, uh, for those that don't know, if a deputy calls 10-8, no report, it was pretty much a non-incident to him. It was just, hey, I'm talking to a, one of my citizens in my county, and we had a nice conversation, and I'm going on my day. So yes. uh, that, that I found that completely hu- humorous. Just as a follow-up, uh, just to let you know, Justin is an FBI supervisor in his uh, career at this point. So I find that very uh, humorous. Uh, and a, and a dig back at the FBI every single day that he exists. I love it. And I'm, I'm proud that he's doing that. I hope he just sits there and pokes in their side until he's done and he's had whatever he wanted <laughs> as far as a career. So all that's good. There's, there's fun stories about Justin Slaby. He was well-received by the guys that went through class with him. Um, as he went back through his reputation has always been good from the, the folks that I've heard. And, and I have no doubt that that would be the case. It's what you'd expect of someone that that exhibited that sort of moral fortitude to go through the process. Cause a lot of people would have run away. A lot of people do run oh. away from that. Yeah. Uh, all, all the, uh, props and, um, you know, just amazing, amazing human being and 
what what we really want in the FBI, quite frankly. And I'll take 100%. him over uh, over 20 able-bodied agents any day of the week. Yeah, 100%. I agree with that. Phil, you got our uh, final plugs here and we'll uh, we'll end this session. And once again, like I said, really grateful for you spending the time with us, Sheriff Crowder. Happy to, happy to be on here. Yep. Yeah. So just a reminder that folks can help FBI whistleblowers at the link below. Go ahead and hit that. Even if you don't want to donate, you can still hit the pray button. We look Please. at all the prayers and we appreciate the ones that have been coming in. And uh, secondly, don't forget to subscribe to the Kyle Serafin show on Apple, Podbean or Spotify. Give us a five star review and we'll read it on the next show. We love them. We check them all out. They've been great. Kyle loves them. All true. Thanks so much for joining us. This is the Kyle Serafin Show, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.